Hi, Jimmy here. Welcome to the second of two Superman-themed podcasts from your friends at Shoulders of Giants. This is Superman Part 2 Super Pitches. If you haven't already, we encourage you to circle back and listen to Superman Part 1 Super Preamble. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Take it away, Hans. I mean, we all love that bit for all its shivery goodness, Hans, but we don't have the royalties for the whole thing, so let's get to the barnstorming bit too before we fade up. and I'm really, really happy. If only for what you said about you've always had this thing, which now you've realised, but I'm, I'm very happy indeed. It went down some weird spots as well, and I, I haven't done it. I, I had a more of a boy's hardcore, and I'll tell you what that is. It'll be obvious what it is at the moment, in the moment. But um, but I, yeah, I, 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 I retreated slightly. Um, but anyway, so... I have gone for Shep's Superman colon Legacy is the name of mine. Released in 2024, two for one, Robin Hood style. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going up against Gun. <laughs> we're coming to Gun. Um, it's directed by Christopher Nolan, who I always forget was a producer oh. of Man of Steel and stuff, but we're going right. with Nolan. He's getting his crack at the other DC icon. Oh, that's um, nice. It doesn't really make any... No, it does make sense that it's Nolan for this bit. But it, it does, it does. Um, so here we go. And I, you know, part of the fun of this is the bloody casting, right? Particularly if you're not going with a Reeve sequel or whatever. like you know. So I don't know whether you have or haven't done that, Sheppy, and I'll keep myself in suspenders for a while there. But of course, I've recast wholesale here. So um, let's let's see what you think. So for the Man of Steel himself, I'm going with John Hamm. Uh, oh, he's wow. going to obviously have to get onto a bit of a regime and bulk up a bit, but I want to see him. And that's kind of the vibe I'm going for kind of in the Christopher Reeve universe. And and, and maybe 10 years after, maybe even yeah. 10 years after th three, let's say. And let's say it's not a returns returns. Like, you know, I, I can't even quite remember all the ins and outs of Lois's marriage and whatnot in returns. I don't really care. Yeah. I'm saying it's a sequel to three, basically, potentially, or in that ballpark. But That's anyway, nice. Ham is in and he is going to be super. <laughs> and then... That's great. Um, quick zag. Have you seen him as Fletch yet? John no, no, not yet. <laughs> I think I need to finish my second run of Mad Men before I do, because yeah, because of Slattery, it might be too much. Uh, yeah, so might be too much to we're, be fair. We're, we're taking a tiny break between season six and seven of Mad Men. The tiniest, but then the last season, and then I'll get to play. Nice. Okay. Well, that isn't the last Mad Men cast member, spoiler alert. Oh. Um, but uh, but anyway, then Lois Lane, I was really like wringing my hands a bit here, but I've landed on Evangeline Lily, 
of the Wasp oh. um, and Lost, obviously. So I think she might be quite a good Lois Lane. Good age with Ham as yeah. well. And yeah, I yeah. think that could work. Ham um, on Lily. <laughs> um, and I've gone then like this is in no particular order of like importance at all. It's just as they came to me. So for for to, to round out the Daily Planet team, I've got Jimmy is Donald Glover of Atlanta oh, wow. and Brilliant. bloody Lando and everything. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it'd be cool. Yeah, why not, man? Yeah. And then um, and then Perry White. I was really thinking about this, and I is channeling a different bit of his energy, but. I think Bob Odenkirk would be a really good Perry oh, yeah. White. Like, different to soul, you know, but just there, like, in the Daily Planet, like, yeah, just with braces on. I'm just seeing it anyway, so that's that makes me happy, that's so wonderful. I'm going with it. Keeping the link there with Bob, uh, I have got, like, a little cameo for Jonathan Banks coming up, just to let you know. Oh, um, I have got Lex Luthor cast as a, a gentleman called Corey Stoll. Do you know him, Sheppy? He yeah. is basically, he's in uh, House of Cards and he plays a bit of a, oh, a, yeah, no, of a lost soul he's, in that. He's, he's the baddie in Ant-Man. Yes, of course he is. Well done, Joe. I think There's a lot of Ant-Man crossover there. I didn't even think about that one. But he's in Billions as well at the moment. and okay. uh, And he is basically so Lex Luthor like in Billions yeah. particularly but he's Brilliant. just kind of there he's a more of a physical presence maybe than we've seen for a while as Lex but he's just uh he's 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 my Lex and I see him as Lex and he makes me happy so that's my Lex Luthor I've got um Jarell is going to come back with some more um Krypton-y type shenanigans um, but he's not going to be played by Marlon Brando because I can't afford the CGI so I've gone with um, <laughs> a, a slightly different energy but I think could really bring some prestige to it. So Jared Harris, I'm going with here, Sheps. There's your madman oh, reunion yeah. between him and Ham. He's yeah. going to play Ham's dad, but I, I think he'd be an interesting spin on Jarrell. You know, it's not the same. We're not trying to go for yes. physical presence; it's just different. No. Um, then uh, David Oliver. I can see him as academic. Yeah, I man. can see him as academic. Uh, yeah, and yeah, definitely. He doesn't need to be Russell Crowe beating up dragons, and he doesn't need to be Brando pontificating. And ignoring Susanna George, but he could just go for it. Susanna York, but he could, yeah. Uh, I could see him closing a book on Krypton and say, <laughs> "Ah, <come out. laughs> join us." In a flashback, he'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nonetheless, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's wonderful casting. Um, and then I've gone uh, David Olielwo, who I cast in everything generally because yes. I really like him. But I want, he's going to play a guy called Olwed in this, which I'll tell you a bit more about in a minute. Um, is Miss Tessmarker stay? Is Miss Tessmarker a staple, um, Sheppy, or is she like I just think... a reincarnation? I don't really know enough about the comics. Yeah, but... I, as far as I'm aware, she was created with Otis. I might be wrong, uh, but I think they were created for the seventy-eight. Okay. Donna. But Miss Tessmarker and Otis, and especially Miss Tessmarker, have then now been in lots of different versions, including Supergirl with Lex and so forth. Nice. Well, I've not recast an Otis, but I have gone with a Tessmarker type who um, is going to be pay, played by Pom Clementy. I think she's got cool oh, energy for that. It brings a little of your Ursa energy from her recent Mission Impossible shenanigans. Well, um, white and... <laughs> of War Simon Pegg. Um, 
And then I've got Viola Davis in there, and she's going to play Olwed's mother. I'll just leave that hanging for a moment. Um, and a gentleman called Jefferson White, who you probably won't know the actor's name, but you'll definitely know his character as um, as Jimmy from Yellowstone. Um, he's got a little cameo as well. Oh, that's nice. And there oh, would be more, but uh, but just, you know, spoiler alert on my own yeah. pitch. Um, this is running, I'm just spun down three and a half pages, Sheps, a very densely written opening, and then, like, very left hanging and i'll just throw a couple of like where where it goes out see so it's a real like imagine i'm the most this is the most arrogant hollywood pitchmeister i've ever been in terms of standing on anyone's shoulders walking into a hollywood office with a hawaiian shirt on don't give a fuck i'm just gonna throw down this is what i want a million a billion bucks to make and then i'm gonna walk out again without even giving them an ending so sorry guys but here we go it's on a napkin i love it it's on a denny's napkin um, yeah, that's great. I like that universe. And they so, pay it. Yeah, they do it. <laughs> yes, yes, on the strength of the shirt. Um, yes. So I've gone pure IMAX. The whole movie is shot in IMAX. And that's the real clear, most important thing of this. Like, I, I want to feel the wind. I want to feel the scale. I want to feel everything, right? So we open in a cold open. Um, and um, and this cold open, I'll tell you where it stops, is what screened in the summer blockbusters before is the little you know chris nolan 10 minutes or whatever do you know what i mean so you get this a year early Um, and um and we're up on a on a gantry on a beautiful summer day in metropolis helicopter shot of metropolis's highest building burj khalifa style with um a big set of scaffold alongside of it we're on the gantry of that scaffold a lift carrying um, the morning crew of two on that scaffold is slowly making its way to the top and it's even that is vertiginous because of the bloody IMAX of it like you know it's really you're really feeling it in the lift part of the crew of two are two cameos so we've got I put Jimmy from Yellowstone and Mike from Baking Bad and they're basically both (laughs) playing the same characters but (laughs) I'm calling Jimmy Tommy so as not to confuse him with the real Jimmy which is ridiculous but whenever I say Tommy imagine Jimmy (laughs) I hope that's clear Um, it's it's Tommy's first day and he's nervous Um, cue you know Mike being very laconic if this is your he's career, like he's still Mike. <laughs> exactly. He's like, if this is your career path, I got bad news, kid. They're only going to make him higher. And then they get to the top, the lift doors clank open, the wind whistles, proper vertigo as they hook themselves to the rig with safety ropes. Tommy gulps. Mike is more Uncle Mike and gives him a reassuring pat on the back. And, um, and then non-diegetically, loving a bit of film studies here, Sheppy, we start to hear applause and we cut to a conference um happening downtown metropolis lois and clark are in the audience and um, mayor olwed um our man olielo um has just been elected and as he speaks um he's speaking platitudes about creating a brand new metropolis and that they've already made metropolis fresher and cleaner for our kids by fixing the water system we've already done it you know we're making huge ground already and everyone's really excited this is the great hope uh Merrill went you know he's he's really something this guy and um Lois is really excited about him um what it means for the city she may actually even have a bit of a crush on him 
um as i said it's kind of in the soups three thread so she doesn't really know about soups for real his identity in this universe um ham as clark i've said is pure reeves bringing up baby iteration um as you said or harold lloyd as you said but bumbling playing on his comic chops perhaps here picking up his jacket and his pad just as everyone applauds and putting them down to clap just when the mayor starts speaking and he keeps getting it wrong and he needs <laughs> his pad most you know but um Anyway, back to the construction site. Mike is coaching Tommy through the rope. Okay, kid, clip that on and slide over to me and you'll be fine, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And their job is basically replacing some of the glass panels on the side of the building. I'm not going to describe it at all, but we actually have a little bit of quality time with the two. Nolan spends that time on the job just right. You feel the weight of the panels and the sharp edges of the glass as they successfully replace one of the windows and high-five in midair in the hoists. And it's a nice moment between the two of them. And But it's proper, like, you know, you're feeling yeah. it, you know, in terms of the height. Um, the camera from them then giddily slowly pans down and we see several levels of the building through the windows, past hotel rooms, flats, a swimming pool, office floors, meeting rooms, a gym, until we reach the ground level and Pom enters. She's a little late for her shift on reception and playing it all giddy, even though we should prob she's probably not. Um, but the guy she's working the front desk with, which is a cameo I've put here, is from Ed Helms. I don't know why I just see him oh, in this universe. Oh, that's nice. Um, and, and all of this was to tee up to being more frothy than maybe it's going to be. Shows. But anyway, Ed Helms is with her and he's really fond of Palm and they're obviously work colleagues and stuff and doesn't mind that she's late. She seems fond of him too. A little ditzy, huge heart shaped sunglasses on. Um, she's mm. forgotten her coffee in a hurry to get to work and convinces Ed to go out and get her one. Ed knows her order, heads over the road. The main reception area is expansive, modern, deserted. Palm sets her bag down on the front desk. There's a huge bomb in her handbag. A man enters the lift, uh, enters the building, sorry, gets into the lift, and she waits for that lift to reach level five, then switches on the bomb, and a 60-second timer starts. She totters over to the door, then remembers her sunglasses are on the desk. She goes back, picks them up, and leaves the building in time, walks down the street, putting those shades on. Over the road, Ed is ordering their coffees as the ground floor of the building he's just left explodes. Pom is skipping down to the subway, gets her phone out. She's got a little um, number stored in there that has just LL and then a heart-shaped icon and just texts no casualties with a kiss. The building's ground floor glass is blown out. It's on fire, but seems fundamentally stable. A crowd is gathering. Ed walks out of the coffee shop, distraught, thinking his pal Pom's obviously a goner. The barista extra that's been serving him says holy shit, look at those guys up there. And that's the last we see of Ed and that guy, but there's a huge creaking sound and the bomb may not have done too much damage to the building, but it has rocked the scaffold. And Mike and Tommy are slightly marooned on one of the ledges. And Mike's giving it the stay calm, stay calm, kid, we'll get out of this. Back to the mayor's first speech. He's stepping down from the stage and shaking hands and all that sort of stuff. And Lois is muscling her way to the front. And the mayor smiles at her and says, Daily Planet. And uh, he says, Lois Lane, am I right? And Lois blushes a little, flattered he knows her name. And uh, she says, Mayor, and the mayor says, you must know Clark Kent. And Lois is immediately deflated. She goes, sure. And uh, he goes, could you introduce me? I mean, and, uh, and Lois says, he's just, he's just over there. 
And uh, the man says, his piece on the experience of migrants to Metropolis was very moving. He's a very talented writer. And Lois is just eye-rolling. And uh, we see Clark <laughs> in the background trying to get cell coverage with his phone, ham, hamming it up, holding up the phone to try and, like, you know, the, and perhaps seat flipping at the same time because he's not looking where he's going. Um, and uh, the uh, Lois gives it the Clark meet Mayor Olwed, and Clark is sort of getting up from flipping over the seat, dusting himself down, and goes, uh, an honor, sir. And uh, and the mayor says, I'd like to speak to you about your thoughts on what we can do for, you know, non-English speaking residents, welfare programs. I think we have a common interest, Mr. Kent. And uh, Clark says, that that sounds great. I, and then he sort of his senses start to tingle and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I've got to go. And the mayor's like, well, I and Ham as Clark runs out of the auditorium into the gents and um, and he's opening the top button of his shirt. There's one cubicle that's not engaged. He pushes the door and it immediately snaps shut with an occupied and he leaves that room, um, <laughs> leaves the bathroom. There's a cupboard door across the hall. And I'm sure this is done before, like Clark trying to find a spot to change. Uh, but I just wanted to throw it in there anyway, again, to just put this jaunty vibe on this. Um, uh, there's a door that says janitor. He runs for it, opens it, slides in. And we just hear a voice in the dark going, you're right there, buddy. And I wanted a cameo from Ned Beatty here, but he's died. <laughs> I think I knew that, but he died oh. in 2019. Um, but let's just say it's Mark McClure, our old friend from Supergirl. Yeah. And, um, and, and anyway, so of course, he's just in there reading the paper under a torchlight or something. And, um, and so Clark has to leave that cupboard, bumps into Lois. And Lois is like, Clark, what's got into you? That was so rude. And Clark said, Lois, I, 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 let, let's get back and strategize this thing. with Perry, it's going to be fine. And Lois is like, no, 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 we've got to work this through right now. We need exclusivity on this thing. And anyway, so Clark is sort of tied at the moment, can't get out of the building. Mike and Tommy, back at the building, um, back at the gantry, are edging along it. Mike makes it back to the main platform of the scaffold, but it's proper edgy and scary and, like, you know, nearly doesn't. He's almost to the lift. Shunted as it is, it looks like it's still operational. But our Tommy, Jimmy from Yellowstone, is really struggling and Mike's like, Mike, come on, kid. you got to give me your hand. Come on. And um, Mike leans out to help Tommy, but it's the wrong moment to lean. And the scaffold creaks again. And then Mike is left back dangling too. And it's just looking pretty bleak. And Mike's like, kid, it might be time to make your peace. And the crowd are really gathered below now, just looking up at them. And uh, Clark is now back with Lois saying, I've got to get some air. I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so good, Lewis. I think it's maybe the conditioning or something, you know. And Lois is like, Jesus, Clark, we'll just be quick about it. And he runs up to the roof. And in the coolest soups hero run we've ever seen, <laughs> rips his shirt open to reveal the S, hope symbol, and leaps from the roof. Little did he know, though, as he leaps, that um, Donald Glover, our Jimmy, was also on the roof getting a shot of the crowd below, greeting the mayor, and um, has seen this super cool run and seen Clark jump off the, the, the um, building edge and he walks over to the clothes, which we have to assume weren't swallowed by Superman and he <laughs> was planning to fly back and pick them back up again um, and picks up Clark's dust, the discarded jacket and gives it a son of a, and that's where Nolan's teaser trailer would end um, in the summer. Amazing. Um, Soups gets to the crumbling building at just the moment the window panes are starting to actually topple from the structure that uh, Mike and Tommy have been on and um, and start falling very heavily towards the crowd beneath. And so that's got to be his first priority, like catching these babies like a computer game, but not a Superman 3-style computer game. And um, 
and he catches a couple, um, blows a couple of them away off a crowd, you know, with super breath, smithereens a couple with his eye laser beams as they're falling from the sky. And um, and anyway, in this moment, um, you know, Supes is just about handling all the pains and Tommy slips and the effects are so good. It really feels like he is going to be splattered brained on the concrete, like he is falling like a rock. And Soup catches him, but only just in time. And give, Soup gives himself a slight check as though his flight speed seems to have waned a little or he hasn't quite done that as quickly as he thought he would. Then he turns his attention up to Mike, who's really straining to hold himself up. His rope is also off now. And like he's basically just holding himself up with his his hands and he's like giving it a real Jonathan Banks uh, veins mm. popping out of his um, head. <laughs> and he slips and um soups flies up to catch him um only as he's flying he doubles in pain during the flight manages to push through that pain though and catches mike midair only his grip isn't what it should be and it just feels a bit loose and he's kind of just struggling a bit with mike and mike's like and they're halfway up the building and they're still very high and mike just looks at superman and goes you got the kid Superman looks weirdly tired but manages a nod and Mike just goes thank you Superman like that and Superman manages a second nod and then suddenly he's not flying anymore and they're both hurtling for the ground and all Superman can do is cradle Mike into his body so he tries to shield him from the impact of the concrete as they connect and crater into the sidewalk so I kind of got my death of superman shot a little bit Sheppy. we get a shot of mike unconscious and superman bloodied in the concrete not dead but very badly injured we hear the the traditional theme and um and the camera then craze back up 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 through the sky through space credits through the sky really long credits million dollar credits (laughs) Sheppy, and um, (laughs) naturally through sky and space and time we zoom to the husk of Krypton and in a clever bit of narrative visual storytelling, we kind of pivot around the planet rather than having a clumsy title card here um, because I want the title cards just, this is all the Superman theme for the, for the movie. Like This is all the credits. Um, but we pivot around the planet and um, and we go back in time in that pivot, you know, through visual aid and um, the planet becomes less of the husk and more Krypton again. Um, we see Jarrell um, placing Kalel in the pod. Um, similarly, um, different, slightly different interpretation here than we, one we've ever seen before. Um, but but you know, nonetheless, it's sort of it's still meant to kind of be the Brando esque one. Um, and then I've got pregnant Viola Davis, one of the council, imploring Kalel, we should be saving more people. We can use the the Argo fleet. Just share the coordinate. We've got to we've got to try and get as many people out of here as possible. And I don't really know the full law in this Sheppy, but maybe there's a thread to be pulled around you know Jarrell could have done more to save more people and have more like do you know what I mean rather than just his son maybe for all the yeah. characters that are falling off all the the icebergs and in, in Krypton in, in the original movie anyway in, in the original movie he is told by the elders you're not allowed to leave you're, you're that's true of course yeah. and so he says I give you my word that will keep quiet and neither me or my wife will Krypton. Oh, by the way, Marlon Brando always says Krypton. He doesn't say Krypton. He always says Krypton. But so anyway, there's a little. Uh, so yes, but That's to your nice. point, it's still a thread that can be pulled. Yeah, I yeah. think so. From what you've said there, Sheppy, and I'm so glad you've you've injected that because I think then what we've got there is her basically being someone we've not seen before, but in this law is like a very close 
comrade of Kalal and uh, is deeply suspicious of what he's then shuffled off to go and do and wanting to just understand it a bit more and then sort of perhaps you know under you know deciding right okay i i actually think i know what that little cheeky monkey's up to and i'm going to try and get <laughs> as many cats out of here as i possibly can so she starts to try and save people herself from krypton with different sort of devices as well and ships and whatnot and um but there's really you know it it's it, it's really you know fool's game the planet's obviously collapsing and um and and basically she's being I've, I've put Viola tries to rescue as many Kryptonians as possible, get you know, giving out the coordinates or whatever that she can possibly to different places, including including Earth and that being a boss, but ultimately with all the destruction, um, her badly damaged vessel is the only other one that makes it out. You know, apologies to all Superman lore fans, you know, out there, because I'm sure I'm going to make people very angry with what I do with this uh, in a minute. Can, but you can interpret. We can do what we want, can't we? Yeah. But anyway, I've gone. We see her PG style um, traverse the galaxy too, not at the same route as um, our our character Kalel, but give birth to a boy in the ship that she's got, which is bigger than the pod that um, little the little Kalel baby's in. Um, and uh <laughs> and with no control and let's say within days of Khalil learning in kansas dave viola davis with her um, baby uh or, or slightly older baby um toddler crashes into an alleyway in the bronx or the bronx of metropolis let's say and manages to haul herself out of the wreckage with her toddler she has sustained really bad injuries to the side of her torso she's basically in other worlds she's a goner but because she's landed in Earth, it, she's going to be able to keep herself going that little bit longer than most would. But, it, you know, she she's almost, you know, she's she's really, really badly hurt. Um, and then this is still credits, by the way. They make the pair make a life for themselves. This is um, Viola Davis and her little boy. Um, and we see the kid, like little silly touches in the credits. Like we see her kid, um, you know, uh, move bend a spoon over his cereal. And Viola, you know, she's in the, we can never forget our heritage, but we need to keep under the radar. That's her, her view, basically. Um, and over the course of this um, little credit period, Viola meets another fella. Um, and I've got Idris Elba coming in for a cameo here, Sheppy. Oh. Um, this becomes our little boy's stepdad. And there's a scene, uh, maybe in the credits again, where this kid's at school, wins the long jump by flying a bit over the sandpit. And Viola knows he used his powers and hauls him back, says that his foot was over the line, and he does, strips the medal off him. And this is all done with very quick visual storytelling. But the bottom line is Viola is absolutely of the view they need. They've landed... They've been given this extra opportunity. They will celebrate Krypton in their own way at home. But the bottom line is they are going to keep under the radar with what they can do. Um, she is sick, though, and her injuries from the wreckage of several years earlier catch up and she passes away during the credit sequence. And Elba, therefore, then becomes from a formative age the kid's stepdad and carer. And we see a few extra scenes before the kid then gets into college. And Elba sends him off to college with a your mum would be so proud moment. And the kid is now, even within the credits, explicitly our Olwed, our Mayor Olwed, playing younger through CGI. Um, nice. Next, um, next wow. still within the credits, and guess like uh, kind of our, our sort of almost final moment of the credits, Sheps, is that um, Elba is walking home one night, Olwed's off in college, and he is mugged, stabbed, and killed on the streets. And um, 
Olwen gets a call at college to let him know and is obviously devastated. And um, the cops attending the crime scene of Elba's murder are like, this is the seventh homicide this week. Where's Superman when you need him? And we cut to a cafe and the oh boy, Mr. Wonderful scene with the really brutal trucker wow. who beats Clark up um, from Soups 2. We don't see that full beat up scene recreated, but we have got, you know, Ham and um, Lily uh, recreating the the end of it, you know, because um, at the end, you know, we've got them outside and, and Clark fully beaten up. Um, and and the the waitress in the place says, "I'll put I'll turn the I'll put on the box." And so she turns on the box, and we see the headline of another murder in downtown Metropolis, sort of thing, you know. And we pull back, and we pull back, and of course, you know, this whole idea that Oldwood now has a bit of a beef, like Superman wasn't there when he should have been when his stepdad was killed, you know, and um and he was remaining under the radar. So we could pull back, and then we get end directed by Nolan, present day. And um, and I've just got nothing really more, Sheps, apart from to say, like, potentially first scene after the credits would be Luther in his lair, reminiscent of the one in the original movie, and very chuffed that he got a two-for-one out of his little bomb explosion and Superman injured. Um, I've got Odekirk and Lane and Jimmy. Um, they've got this exclusive with the man. They've got Superman sick in hospital, but where the hell is Kent? And Jimmy decides to cover for Clark, you know, and says, you know, his his, his auntie's unwell and well, his auntie's died. And she, you know, his auntie's is she died by three? But is she still alive in Superman three? Martha Kent. Yeah, she no, doesn't she pass doesn't. away, does she? You don't see her die, but she she's referred to be dead. Oh man, that's sad. Okay, well, I mean, I think we can just say it's a sick relative. But that's that's good to know. I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten that. I know. Um, uh, but anyway, we we th- this and then basically, um, you know, all I've got then here, basically, Sheps, are just a couple of little extra beats here, which is that, um, you know, we Superman gets himself reason, you know, is in hospital, he's unwell, he gets himself out of hospital again, um, and and of course, you know, the, the way that this sort of then plays out is, Olwed in fixing. Uh, metropolis's water one of his extra props is going to be his own little filtered bottle of water because he's um he's put some kryptonite through the the water supply of uh, metropolis which is of course over time deeply weakened our soups and um and that's his you know new adventures of superman style lois that's (laughs) great and the, the only couple of things i've thrown down here are um that I think Jimmy then, I don't know that it resolves itself, Jimmy knowing, apart from to say maybe that's our last scene sting of the movie would be him confronting him. And um, and and he's just kind of then therefore a bit scared and wary of Clark over the rest of the movie, Donald Glover, in quite a fun way, kind of channeling his he community could, character maybe a bit, you know. There could be a running thing where he keeps trying to catch a photo. He's there oh, with yeah, his like camera, but so freaked out he didn't get a photo. He's trying to do it and he keeps failing. It could be comic or it could be Mr. McGee style tense. And at the end, they could confront him. <laughs> but Jimmy's ultimately a good guy. So I don't think he'll try and blackmail Clark. No. No. I, but I like that idea, Sheps. And then the only other thing that I really wanted to build up to, and I, I'm gutted I haven't quite had the chance to, because it would I think it would have been a guaranteed. Sheppy LOL and I I unfortunately haven't quite got to it but the I think the middle um set piece would be like a properly good 
metropolitan uh, metropolis um subway set piece unlike a uh, quest for peace like a really tense one um, <laughs> well, <laughs> and um, and the idea being like it's absolutely set up from Orwed to basically um you know have superman come and save the day but not quite have enough power to and um and and at the precise moment where superman realizes he can't do it pom happens to be there as well and basically his, who has in in a pure sort of test marker thing has a bit been a bit infatuated with superman secretly with lex but then as soon as she sees Mayor Olwed come in and finally, you know, shun what his mother's advice was and take on the mantle of Metropolis's real hero, um, then, uh, and, and sees him in action, actually saving the train where Superman can't, uh, then uh, she gives it the old uh, mind over muscles and just pushes Superman <laughs> to one side and it's suddenly infatuated with Olwed. Amazing. But, uh, yeah, but, that's yeah. great. Um, um I, that's great is does he have a like does he announce himself as the mayor or does he i uh, think he comes he... out and he says i don't need to hide my true identity i'm yours i'm a coward uh yeah, yeah i'm your real son of krypton sort of thing you know and i yeah i think i, I had this whole thing i wrote which then been because it's a bit shit where basically it 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 doesn't go back to Krypton over the credits, and it is Clark getting his interview, and um and it's a little bit of a reveal scene, and he you know Owen has actually just got a piece of one of those Kryptonite you know bicycle-y things whatever they're called, and yeah. um, and 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 has that and shows it to Clark and says. I think you might be able to help me with this. And Clark still plays up with the, you know, oh, this is very pretty. What is it? You know, and then he's like, no, 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 come on, Kalel, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And then, and anyway, so I think like there's there's something there, you know, but I, I mean, Owen, of course, has to be careful with all the kryptonite because he's going to be as effective as Clark is. Can't drink any water. Yeah. That's for sure. Can't drink any <laughs> water. He's got to stick with Emmy. Uh, yeah. Maybe there could be a thing where. He's been doing stuff with water, and so Clark or Lois or someone can do something like freeze the water, and like he realizes that he's standing on an ice rink of kryptonite water, and he loses his powers, and then Clark can have an even fight with him or something like that. Holy moly! That's, That's a brilliant like, idea. I like that, and it's absolutely a redemption story, Sheps. Like you know, it will go right to the edge and then back, and then of course. Pam gets his powers back and gets some uberness because yeah. I, I wanted to like um, go even darker. I was going to have Banks die right at the beginning. Like I was going to be cliffhanger style. Like, you know, you think this yeah. is a soup's rescue mission. And then I realized basically what we've got then is poor old John Hamm signs up to play Superman. And then oh. it's just an absolute bummer from start till the final act. Like, you know, <laughs> he's just, he kind of doesn't rescue him. He drops the ball and then he's lost his powers a little bit or waned at least. And then like, yeah. you know, get maybe a moment at the end, pretty rough. Um, but yeah, so Sheppy, that's what I have. It's a bubble. And like for some, someone else, um, you know, to, to finish one day, but um, and, but I think you you can see the beats it would go to, and it would be the two sort of brothers in inverted commas, you know, to really kind of take it to the edge, and then you know potentially for yeah. uh, Olwed to see the error of his ways, but perhaps too late, perhaps not, and like soups to bring him back, and Maybe. certainly doesn't kill him at the end. Certainly doesn't kill Maybe him. Maybe Olwed could like perform the supreme sacrifice, like what have I done? And in the last bit, he like you know saves the earth from going into the sun. He goes into the sun, but it overpowers nice. him too much. It's too much yellow sun. 
beginning of Splinters. Becomes his own star or something. He fucking oh, that. that's nice. Not really, but nice. <laughs> I think and I then he comes back as a dark star in the sequel, or the third oh, nice. of this trilogy, The Return. And I wondered with maybe like a, there could be, there could have been something where he was infused with the tech from Viola to be able to bring Krypton back. But in bringing Krypton back, it would be something like taking the Earth's moon or something, whatever. Like, there would be something crazy like that that would basically then render yeah, yeah. Earth lifeless That's as great. well. You know, that was sort of another thought that, that briefly whistled through Jimmy's earlobes. But just them. Um, That's great. Yeah. Um, nice man well listen that that's that's as much as i got for soups and i only ever wanted to get that opening down anyway so weirdly life has, has dealt me that so card that's what's what the to... idea was the idea you always had that superman goes to save someone cliffhanger style and they and they die yeah. and i and i just really wanted something very elemental but done with superb effects ships yeah like creaking not... loops I don't the need to see, yeah, I don't bit. need to see laser beams and stuff. Like you know, the most powerful stuff is when you really believe a man can fly. And if you can really believe a man can fly, then you really believe like he's really up there in a way that you would never be up there. And if the camera can take yeah. you there, that's really fucking cool. Like you know, yeah. and that would be amazing to really play that out and i get such vertigo anyway like watching an imax where you've got poor old mike and jimmy like yeah. dangling and being really scared and tense that would be quite fun for me um, that's great no i like it and yes having this villain uh, and the idea of like the pregnant mother coming over from krypton and stuff is really good i i love that and and all of that it's brutal that Idris gets stabbed up. And I killed. know, man. That's good. But, yeah, what can he do? Maybe he could turn out like once Viola dies, that she was the one keeping him on the street and narrow. And once she dies, he goes <laughs> off the rails and turns into a Roman and doesn't get stabbed up or anything, but you know, turns into a nasty person. And that adversely affects the future mayor, perhaps. Like, that's yeah, that's you know, a good thread, too. And, and then the Idris gets a chance to get it turned into a dick. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. I think also there's something there around that Superman 2, you know, there's a bit of collateral damage to Superman 2's decision. Whether Superman should have to wear that stuff on his shoulders, he should be able to make his own decisions. But nonetheless, he does do that. And you can imagine there were people injured and, yes. you know, as a result well, of that. Well, in Superman 2, in that fight, Superman gets punched through a building and the bricks come down and there's like a woman who's like, Superman, help us. And she's like got a broken arm and stuff because it's all come down on that. Oh, so it does happen in Superman 2. You know, um, it's not to the extent, of course, of thousands upon thousands perishing. But yes, you do see adverse you know, effects. You know, Superman 2. Um, can I quickly say about, um, I, I mentioned before, I think I got it wrong about kryptonite. I believe in the comics, red kryptonite will make you go Superman 3, not die, but not evil, but just turn you into a bit of a dick. And gold kryptonite has the effect that normal kryptonite has on Dean Kane's Superman, in that it doesn't kill you, but it takes away your powers. So I believe Superman 3 should be red kryptonite, if you're going to be accurate, and New inventions should be gold. So there you go. <laughs> no, I just sure. popped in there, and I'll, I'll be annoyed if I didn't mention it because I realised my mistake. Um, I'm bloody Wonderful. loving all of that. Oh, Let me say yeah. again how much I enjoyed yours and the the very dark uh, setup with Mike, whether he survives or not. 
that was really good. And so I like that. It's another Jimmy classic of like a, a really hardcore, meaty, emotional moment. And so that's great. How old well, I were wonder you there. when you came up? Yes. Oh, oh, how old, man? I'm talking 13. I've been thinking That's of that. Right. I've always That's thought right. I, I could hear the clinking of the workman up there, you know, inspired by what's that famous painting of the guys having the break, you know, and they're on the yes. list and they're all eating well, sandwiches. Like, there there are, as ever, as very often, there are similarities in little ways between yours and mine. And um, in many nice ways, chef. including that image that you just oh. mentioned. Uh, by the way, my favourite of the pastiches of those of that is probably because there's the Friends one, and there's like with um, Superman and you know and Batman and and, and all them oh, yeah. sitting there and Hulk's <laughs> there at one point. Um, all but but there's also I'm sure a Muppets one, which I I think <laughs> is pretty great. So and there's a Simpsons one. So yes, yes. So they're all worth a shout out anyway, and I and I like all of those. Can I ask you something that might put you on the spot in a way? I, I probably I don't know, but I wonder. Like, so I cast Ham, and like I, you know, he's not Henry Cavill. You know, he is not Mister Brickhouse six pack, not quite the Rock, but almost the Rock yeah. shape. You know, if and... you made your film instead of two thousand twenty three or four, um, like two thousand six or seven, like when he's just sort of like prime Draper. Yeah, um, that would that would be interesting, and he would still be kind of like a quote unquote older Superman, and I can see him with his floppy hair look as Clark Kent when he doesn't have it creamed back. Um, so yeah, yeah no, it's, it's good stuff. It's good. Do stuff. you know why he's... Soups is super muscly? Is it just our general thing? Because I guess technically he could be weedy water and land from well, Krypton and still be the strongest yes. of all of us. You know, well, like... he's genetically very well disposed as Kalel because he's got a very nice fit mum and he's got like a very very brainy dad and so he's very bright <laughs> and he's genetically well well turned out. So he's got that on his side from the off. Then he's got the yellow sun. So he's like, well, well, that's nice. Um, in terms of, I don't know, what was your exact phrasing of that question just so i don't go off track. Um, I, well i just wondered like whether there's a reason why he was so muscly it's probably oh yes probably well, artist's I think, choice so i think there's that and you know he grew up on a farm so he had he had a workout lifting mm. up tractors and throwing hay bales <laughs> around so he built up a little thing now in the original imagery of superman and i mentioned this it was very much based on the strong men which was very popular you know lifting things and their muscles weren't particularly defined they weren't like Arnie or anything by today's standards where the muscles from, I guess, the 80s onwards, really, they became something. Whereas in the 70s, they seemed to be more slabby type men, like Eastwood and Reynolds, the slabby as fuck. Not flabby, slabby. Um, and, you know, granite and so forth. Um, and, and so on, Lee Marvin, for God's sake. And then so, but, you know, the 30s and also 20s strong men who wore that uniform and Superman was often linked to that, you know, the Superman competition and stuff. And it's all those you know, people go, aha, Nishi. And it's like, nope, wrongy. So, um, <laughs> so I guess Superman, he became muscly, I guess. I mean, you got, again, 70s, 50s, I guess, the cartoons, he was muscly. George Reed wore a muscle suit. Um, so there's that. And then the cartoons, he's like really muscly. It's like Spidey in like the 80s, muscly as fuck. And it's like, okay, well, that's kind of my era, so I'm all for it. But he doesn't need to be muscly. I mean, Christopher Reeve, 
I saw him with his top off hanging out with Miss Tessmarker, for God's sake, of course he would. And he's very, very, you know, well-defined. Cavill is the Daniel Craig, you know, he's like Barney, basically. Yeah. Um, which is yeah. fair enough because it's then matching that particular imagery from that particular era of comics. But he doesn't have to. Do. And Christopher Reeve isn't that. He doesn't wear a muscle suit and he's very muscly, but he's not like bulging, as it were. Um, and it's, it works. So he's lean, um, but he's not, you know, he's like built. He's, it's good stuff. And so he that, just has it. all the charisma, doesn't he, Reeve, of it? All the charisma. Hey, I want to say, Shep, some people like catch a flu and then they're like, shit, I've got a singing voice now and I need to record all the best tracks. You know, they're suddenly very excited. I'm a lost cause there. But me getting the flu, my parky questioning continues. Like that one simple question that popped up, I thought Sheppy will have an interesting opinion here. You know, it unlocked some vintage <laughs> Sheppy. I need to like, you know, for the next part, I'm just going to be like sniffing tissues from other people so I can like be a better form for the, yeah. Okay. Sniffing tissues from other people. Yeah, I don't you know. know. I don't know. You're, you're I... trying to catch germs from other people. Yeah, to get the flu again to be a better question. Yeah, I see. Stay with so, me. Stay with me. No, <laughs> I've got it. I've got it. I'm trying to find something where that sort of thing happens, and I think you might have cornered the market there. But I'm sure there's something where someone <laughs> makes herself ill. Yeah. I think there's a Buffy where she can see this demon when she's really ill, but then she gets better, so that she gives herself the illness again, so she can see the demon for big finale so there you go that's as close as I can get. um well I'll, I'll jump in i'm gonna say something in terms of mine there are actors who i say you know they could be playing certain characters but i haven't really done that because and so in terms of the side characters or the villain and so forth you know you would have name people and I could throw names out but I, I, but I sort of deliberately didn't and I've left this actually this one very blank cast wise um, either way I would have an unknown playing Superman and an unknown playing Lois um, and so with that in mind whatever but you know I could say for example someone could be Gary Sinise and I could see that it's uh, but I'm not going to do it and in terms of director, I'm, I'm kind of not going to do that anyway, because I guess if whoever shoots it kind of does it how it's described, then that's fine. If I have to name a director, it's going to, it's going to immediately shock you, but then I'll explain it. If it's going to, if my Superman is going to have a director, it's first of all, it's going to be 2023-24 again, and it would be Steven Soderbergh, because... He makes different genres. He, he's one of those directors who likes doing a million, every genre, and he's working his way through them. And he's done an action film, but he hasn't done a superhero film. And to do a Superman film, he, would, he wouldn't put his own stamp on it. In fact, his stamp is honouring the genre and just doing, you know, making the genre on screen. And so he, so I'm saying it's Soderbergh directs this. Well, that's um, very nice. But, and I respect all those decisions, Sheppy. Respect all those decisions. Nice. Um, there's other one, other bombshell I'll hit you now with. So mine, I haven't really ever even given it a name, honestly. It's just Superman. And because there actually isn't a Superman film called Just Superman, because, of course, Superman the movie, I'm just going to go with it. Um, it. It could have some sort of, you know, I could, but no, I'm just going with Superman. It's just called Superman. Okay. Lip and eggs. This is 
confidence. I love it. Come on. When when you set this, I immediately kind of drew a blank. You know, where I was like, well, Superman is Superman, and you said about doing another Donna, but to be honest, Superman three is so perfect. Donna was right to turn down four because there's nothing you could do weird stuff. You could do a million things, but it's a sort of that as the ideas go makes sense. He arrives at his first thing. Then the super villains and Lois finds out and all of that, goes human, gets his ass kicked, blah, blah, blah. And that amazing bit when he gets his power back, it's like Rocky 2, win, win. Yay. Amazing. Love that film. Then Superman 2 and Rocky 2. Then you've got, oh, hang on. I just totally lost my train of thought because I got really locked in on, on that. So <laughs> remind me where I was going. You had super villains and Lois and power back. Oh, yes. For two so the natural progression two. of story. Right. So then you've got number two. Then you've got number three where it's like, well, now what? Okay, you get a sort, a sort of evil him. You've got a supercomputer because it's the 80s and people love computers. We'll throw in Richard Fryer. Um, and, and the evil soups sort of thing will be the angle, the hook, and the computer and fire will be the other hooks. So they do that. After that, it's like, well, yeah, we've had a bad Superman. What else can we do with Superman? Um, so I'm not doing a Donner. So I'm just straight off. That's why I'm not doing a Donner. The other thing is, um, I just wanted like to tell a totally what would my Superman story be? And I had no idea what it would be. And I was lying in bed and I thought, well, the first Superman comic was published in 1938. I knew that for some reason. Um, and then I thought, well, what if the film is set in 1938? And once I did that, I was like, oh, well, that's wow. great. That's an wow. in. And I went to sleep. And, and this is what happened. So when I did the Flash Gordon sequel previously in an episode, check it out. Um, I went to Wikipedia and I just wiki the fuck out of early Flash Gordon serials and the history and I just got a big list of characters with their sort of brief you know descriptions and stuff um and then I sort of built and adapted to it and that's where my Flash Gordon sort of came from and I did exactly the same thing with my Superman um so I went right back to like the 1938 sort of and then very early 40s when things started getting more kind of sci-fi and then I sort of leaned into that. And so that was my my angle. And I thought in an alternative universe, saying like what I've said before, this could actually, the Soderbergh 2024 film is sort of a very loose remake of a 1940 film with Cary Grant and Superman. And it's that cast. And it's, a, you know, and it's basically the same plot, but, you know, on a, it's like 80 minutes long and it's like pretty, you know, um, but yeah, so there's there's that happening in this universe as well. Um, nice, awesome. I'm so excited. That's a brilliant, brilliant spin. I love it. I'll so say, clean I'll and fresh and happy. Well, yeah, that was exciting. And then I just the other thing in terms of all of that was, um, spoiler, the war, you know, is looming and so on. And that plays a part. But I didn't want to disrespect history and survivors in the dead. I kind of put being like ba ba, um, and so I've kind of changed the world anyway. Like, and I'm and sort of peppered throughout, and I haven't peppered throughout, but in the final thing, it would be peppered throughout little things, like just to show that this world is, you know, for one thing, we know that um, there are aliens and there's been alien contact, and people know about Superman, and Superman's been Superman in, in this for you know like probably four years. Um, and it's just the dynamic. Uh, I'll give you another spoiler. So it's for, it's for pure dynamic, which actually doesn't happen that often in any superhero film adaptations. And it does drive me a bit nuts. 
it's never just the premise, the premise of the comics that lasted, you know, decades and decades. So I'm just doing that. So spoiler, Lois doesn't find out it's Clark or anything like that. Um, there's one tiny, tiny, tiny thing, but I don't want anyone to think it's going to lead to anything. Um, and it's a bottle, you know, like at the end, essentially it's self-contained. And it's just like, and it's one in a series of big Superman adventures. So that's sort of the other angle. Oh, and so the little differences in this world, just to sort of establish that it's different. Um, for example, uh, Australia was colonized by Japan in the 16th century, uh, for example. Uh, Canada has its own monarchy and the king is keen on opening trade routes into Russia. England is France's Isle of Wight. <laughs> <laughs> Mexico is like uh, kind of like Saudi Arabia it's, and it's like one of the planet's wealthiest nations and stuff um, and, and there's kind of it's 38 but it's not you know because of this weird world anyway the technology is kind of the same from 38 the cars whenever I mention a car just imagine a 1938 car um, they are basically that but if I if there's any discrepancy in actual stuff like cement plays a part in this film, as you would imagine from the Superman film. So if cement wasn't invented till the 50s, then in this world it was. So for example, so just get, you know, get in there. And also there's no, like, the sexism and racism, you know, is is not as pronounced as you would expect, meaning it's like a not all white work environment and stuff like that, you know, just little things like that. Um, nice. So, so, okay. Oh, and I'll just also say, as this is a biggie, um, and as we I did with Indiana Jones and also James Bond, I've just really, really gone off on one for like the, of the first 10 minutes. And then after that, it's not in that much detail, but it's still fairly chunky. So um, let me just take a sip of tea. Very excited, ships. Flipping it. Very good, man. That's, that's, that's a perfect bubble. I'm glad you've been able to realize this as well. I'm trying to remember your Batman pitch and whether you did it as standalone adventure as well. The Batman um, was very much a sequel to Batman Returns and yeah. it was you know, involving Harvey played by Billy Dee Williams. Mm. But it had Christopher Lee as uh, Mr. Free. So, yeah. so there you go. Um, <clears throat> but it was very much obviously Keaton. Whereas this, it's all. Uh, oh, and I'll also say another thing. Um, I didn't, you know, when I was a kid, and for the longest time, because I didn't read the comics or anything, it was always like Superman, Lex Luthor, Kryptonite. And that was, you know, always a thing. And so I try, I, 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 so there's no Lex and there's no Kryptonite, basically, just to, you know, drop that in there. Um, so it's opening, Superman. Uh, we have a shot of the city and the title card comes up saying Metropolis, 1938. Uh, we open with some establishing shots, you know, of the proud majestic city early morning. It's a real Die Hard with a Vengeance wannabe, uh, with small businesses opening and, you know, people hosing down sidewalks and all of that, and businessmen in hats hurrying for their trains and things. Um, and we see grand old buildings, large pillars, Latin carved into the wall and stone sign above the door um, of this old building saying Metropolis National Bank. And we see inside, it's one of those really nice old school grand you know banks and big open lobby and stuff and tellers open their stations and the manager greets some of his uh, security as he enters and some of the staff 
and the security guard uh, checks his watch and then the clock high on the wall and he unlocks and opens the main door and customers uh, start milling in. And then seven tall, wide men enter carrying large leather travel bags and they're wearing brown, green soccer uh, oh, uh, type sort of jackets. Oh no, no, sorry, green grocer type jackets. And they all wear sort of, uh, sort of blacky trilbies, except the leader whose hat is purple. And each man looks very similar, actually, to the other. Um, they all could be brothers. So the same height and build, uh, black, greasy hair, long hooked noses. And they mill about, but look shifty as fuck. Then at a signal from the leader, each pulls uh, up sort of welders goggles. It's very steampunk over their eyes, um, covering their faces. And the leader reaches the head of the queue, approaching the teller. And she's like, good morning. And he says, good morning. And he stoops and he pulls up on his own goggles and reaches into his bag and pulls out like this ma large machine gun. But it's not like a normal gun you'd expect from the 30s or anywhere. It's like pure machine gun, but it's like a cross between a Tommy gun, an oversized Tommy gun, and like a kind of a, an HK-47 ahead of its time. Uh, and all the other men pull out their own identical guns. Um, and so this heist, you know, they do the classic shout and fire into the air and making everyone drop to the ground and all of that. And one of the men violently swings his gun into the uh, guard's jaw, knocking him down and out. And the men perform all the usual stuff, some on the crowd control, others filling bags from the teller's stations, while two others grab the manager and march him off and force him to open the large safe where they fill their bags with thousands of banknotes. Uh, a little boy with his cowering mother lie face down on the floor, and the boy looks up at one of the robbers as he paces the floor past them, and the robber looks down at the child, and he raises one of his goggles for a second and flashes a wink down at the boy, and as he winks, his eye seems to be almost too blue, and his face seems to have like a sort of a tick, so the side of his face is sort of twitching, accompanied by the faintest sort of like a static whir noise with his uh, shiny blue eye. And then the boy stares wide-eyed and quickly ducks his head back face down on the floor. And the men uh, take the bags of cash and the notes, you know, some notes are fluttering behind them as they do the classic and they shoot the place up uh, and then they leg it. Um, outside they spill into three waiting cars, all, you know, proper old school model Fords, that sort of thing. And a, a lone police car races up and two of the robbers immediately turn and level their guns at it. Just before the guns are fired, there is a, always like a sort of a slight noise, like a whine, as if the guns are powering up, um, furthering the out-of-place feel of the design. So it's a before, chugga, chugga, chugga. Uh, the police car swerves to a stop and the two patrolmen uh, within duck down as their car is riddled with bullets. But these are not usual bullets either, ripping the car apart, just shredding metal and exploding the glass. Um, the roof is like peeled back like a sardine tin. Um, and all this, plus each gun, seems capable of firing a good 500 rounds before reloading is necessary. These two men then dive into the cars uh, with their guns and engines and tear off, leaving uh, uh, scattering pedestrians, a destroyed cop car and a busted fire hydrant spraying water high into the, uh, the air and down the street, whilst banknotes flutter in their wake. Um, so all the classic imagery. We cut to a back garden of a little neat suburban house containing neat cut grass and neat flower bed and a tree with a swing and standing by the tree looking up into the branches is the little girl and a title card comes up reading Germany near Frankfurt 
and we move from a high shot of the garden down to the little girl who is talking to her cat who is sitting high in the canopy of the branches above and the little girl calls up speaking in German with subtitles and she's like Rudiger come on you can't stay up all there all night Rudiger that owl will laugh at you Rudiger uh, a sound of wind uh, as he as the stirring of the tree's branches makes the girl shift her focus and she gawps. Rudiger looks up and also gawps. Red boots slowly descend into shot, followed by cape. We see legs, torso, arms folded across a wide blue chest. Well, really, I guess a, a red and yellow chest. Superman sinks into frame into a nice close-up of a kind, amused face. In German, he too speaks to Rudiger with subtitles, and he says, okay now, Rudiger, you know it's too late for these sorts of antics. And he reaches out. Rudiger looks less than thrilled, but allows himself to be picked up and then slowly float down to the ground. And they land in front of the still gawping little girl, and Soup's hands her the cat. And the girl is like, Rudiger, you are in so much trouble. Mother will be furious. And Soup smiles at both of them. And Soup says to her, not to worry, miss. Cats climb trees, mothers worry. But it's people like us that make it better. And she looks from the cat to Superman to the cat to Superman. And the girl says, thank you, Herr Superman. He isn't a bad cat. He just does bad things sometimes. And Soups is about to say something else when he pauses and frowns. And we move in on the side of his face and his ear. We hear a, a very brief amalgamation of sounds, like a radio being tuned without the static. Different sounds and noises from across the nations. And then the screeching of tires, the sound of gunfire, shouts and screams and police sirens. The distraction leaves his face and he smiles again down at the little girl and cat. And Soup says, well, you know, the trick to doing bad things is to know how to stop. And she looks slightly blank at this and he smiles and he says, good night, miss. Good night, Rudiger. And Soup's raises up, lifting into the air, past the top of the trees, over and away from the garden and up into the sky and away. Pow! Fast. Little girl and Rudiger uh, stare. From inside the house, we hear the voice of the mother. Gretchen, how many times? Put that smelly cat down and get inside this moment. He's not even ours. And the little girl quietly to uh, <laughs> herself puts down Rudiger and goes into the house saying, Scheiser, and uh, goes inside. Cut to Metropolis. Busy street. Uh, the bank robbers in their three cars are having a high-speed chase through the city. Half a dozen patrol cars on their tail as they weave between cars, cabs, bikes and pedestrians. The robbers not driving, uh, the ones who are not driving are leaning out of the windows or standing, you know, as they do, like Dillinger and shit, on like the, the, the sideboard outside hanging onto the top of the car, um, firing their machine-powered repeaters at the cops. Other cars swerve and some crash into fruit stools alfresco tables and chairs and shop awnings uh insight now one thing i didn't mention earlier is whilst i was doing my research like flash gordon i went through and chose a bunch of characters from very early superman stories and i heavily adapted some of them and amalgamated others and purists would be furious but i kind of cherry picked and sort of put them in and the most bizarre is a character called hayfoot harry uh, policeman um, and so I've got him here and he was in early Superman stuff and he was like this kind of bumbling crazy flatfoot and I think he got his own strip for a while um, but his gimmick was that he always spoke in rhyme or limericks or even sometimes anthemic parameter um, and he really went for it and I'm just including him here 
and sort of honoring that just really randomly in this universe this guy speaks like this and people just go with it nice. um so inside one of the lead patrol cars in pursuit we meet officer hayfoot this is a slightly older beat cop with a drinker's nose and ruddy complexion he drives uh he's the only cop in the car wide-eyed at his own speed talking into the handset of his radio as he fights panic swerving to avoid other cars and the bullets from the robbers vehicles and hayfoot into the uh the radio oh I, you know i kind of see him looking like chief o'hara from batman basically um and he's like control control i'll pay the toll my car's shot up what rigmarole and uh, the car swerves through the streets at high speed and we go back inside his car he's like into the radio they're moving fast they're burning rubber if i keep this up i'm short a blubber and uh, the two <laughs> robbers continue to swerve through the main street firing from all sides uh one cop car is hit the tire bursts and it spins 18 style up through the air almost crashing into hayford's car with him swerving just in time now they get away cars separate uh, the back car taking a sharp left Hayfoot follows, turning sharply, and his eyes go wide and he slams on the brakes as we see the robber's car ahead has stopped dead sideways on, and the gunman standing on the wing of the car is now holding his gun in two hands, bringing it up, taking it aim right at Hayfoot in his car, which sits utterly exposed. Hayfoot's car screeches to a halt with no time to duck. He can only raise his arms in front of his face as the robber pulls his trigger and fires a stream of bullets straight at her. Hayfoot's windshield and we hold on Hayfoot flinching in his car but nothing hits him and confused and wary he slowly lowers his arms and we see the inside of his car is bathed now in a sort of a red haze and we cut to Hayfoot's point of view and the view from the windshield is almost entirely filled up with a red cape diffusing the light and Soups has come down fast and blocked the bullets facing the gunner who's back to the patrol car uh, the insane stream of bullets bounce off Superman's chest as they just keep firing as he holds his ground in between the two cars. The bullets ping off in rapid succession, and Suits even looks a bit surprised by the viciousness of the spray from these advanced guns. Through his windshield, Hayford peeks from uh, between his arms, sees the street, sees the robber's car, the shooter, who's about 10 metres away, and between them, Superman, facing, um, facing the, the gunner, the gun stops firing and the robber, robber looks at Soups over the, his smoking gun barrel and Soups looks back and, slightly affronted, says to the robber, Ow! The driver of his car, um, of the robber's car, slams the accelerator and the car tears away, the shooter hanging off the side. Soups turns and looks at Hayford. He says, You okay, officer? Hayford says, Don't trouble with me, man of steel. Now get that creep from behind his wheel. And Superman nods, one professional to another, and shoots off after the fleeing car. The man standing on the sideboard of the car, holding onto the roof, firing uh, is uh, firing straight at Soups, and Soups is dodging around the bullets or pinging them to one side. As they go, we see more of the city. Uh, we see the, they're, in the, they're leaving the business district now, and through other areas, some of which are still under construction, with half-built skyscrapers under scaffold and so forth. We see uh, the car and Soups speed par like the metropolis version of the brooklyn bridge still about a third built uh, and, and then other construction sites all over the place with trains uh, hoisting girders etc soups is slowed by avoiding uh, the uninterrupted spray of bullets 
and also from swerving and pulling bystanders and so forth out, out of the way. And, you know, so that slows him down. Inside the robber's car, the driver uh, speaks into a radio of his own, and we cut to the lead car driven by the purple-hatted leader. And the driver says the leader into the radio, he's still following. These weapons work on cops, but not on him. And the leader says, keep at him. Remember his weakness. And the driver, more guns. And the leader, more victims. Driver understands, and uh, as Soups looms large in his rear view, the driver swerves, aiming at a light at a scattering pedestrian. Uh, Soups is further slowed by saving this guy, some other people, and um, as and also swerving through like half-built uh, built brick walls to avoid the population and so forth. Um, at one point, the car actually plows straight through some scaffolding and lots of mason masonry's raining down on the on like a group of people and soups zigs and zags and flies through the streets um, and like uh, with his with his ray vision he like goes ahead of him and with his fists in the ray vision he, he smashes that up into sort of like floating down powder into the public below uh, and he catches up with the fleeing robbers. And now Soups, he raises up and looks ahead of the fleeing car. Ahead, there's a snarl up of traffic, cars and trucks, all at a standstill, blocking the intersection. With the car having nowhere else to go, the driver sees the obstruction and floors the accelerator. Soups moves parallel to the car, uh, flying alongside. The driver's foot remains pressed to the floor as the car rockets uh, right at the glut of traffic and pedestrians ahead. The gunner still hangs from the side and tries to take aim at either Soups or any potential collateral damage that it, you know which he can get to. Soups scans for options and he takes a breath and he blows super cold breath, freezing the road in front of the speeding car. Now heavily iced and frosted white, the car careens this way and that, still rocketing along, forcing the gunner to hold on tight and thus not shoot. Soups now writes himself. So he's now actually in a standing position, his feet touching the iced road, sliding alongside the car. Um, and you know what? He's not like 100% balanced. He's not like standing with his hands on his hips or anything. He's a bit like wobbly and a bit like, whoa, whoa, like on your third trip ice skating. And he holds his arms out a little bit at his sides, giving like a lot of concentration to the maneuver. But he stays upright. And as the gunner on the side of the sliding car again, like levels his gun, Soup blows ahead, lengthening the slick route ahead, then moving up, freezing the ground as it reaches the stuck traffic, creating a ramp of ice going up to the side of the stationary cars and, uh, and trucks and things ahead. Um, and the driver sees this and yells, and the gunner fires at Soup's, and the car uh, hits the ice ramp and takes off. And as the car sails through the air over the pedestrians and stuck traffic, the gunner loses his grip, and flies off alongside the car, sailing, still firing as he goes. And the car um, leaves him behind, taking flight, shooting over, um, the, and lands heavily on the other side. The gunner falls and lands hard, and he rolls over and over very fast on the icy road before crashing into the curb, and he lies still. The car, after landing heavily on the other side, uh, the impact is like really fucks the car up, and the front axle comes off, and the car slides across, scraping uh, to a stop with lots of sparks from the front, and the driver inside doesn't move. Uh, passengers from the pileup, as well as onlookers, slowly start to gather in a circle around this scene. Soups checks with a few other car drivers to make sure they're okay. Uh, one of them, a cabbie, 
through his stubby stoogie, uh, leans out and, you know, Superman's like, so are you okay? And the guy says, better than him. And Soup turns and sees, you know, across the street, about 20 meters away, the gunner who's on the ground, all just like lying there. But then the gunner sort of stirs and slowly gets to his feet. And he takes half a stagger forward, like into the road a bit. And Soup says to the cabbie, well, he looks well enough to me to serve a full sentence. Just then, a large truck hits the ice, loses control, swerves, skids, and smashes straight into the side of the gunner, knocking him flying through the air to land in a tangled heap. And there's an awkward pause as Soups and the cabbie see this and sort of examine the unmoving body from across the street. And then the cabbie says, oh yeah, he looks fit to testify to me. And Soup kind of gives him a bit of side eye and then like approaches the still form somewhat gingerly. And he says, uh, sir, are you okay? And then remarkably the figure stirs and the crowd gasps and the gunner gets to his feet in one smooth movement. And he stands stooped in the road a beat. Then he turns to face Soup's and the cabbie and the gathered crowd. And we see part of the gunner's face is missing and his left arm is hanging off his shoulder and sparks are coming from the exposed shoulder, which appears metallic. And the face beneath the peeled skin is also sparking and twitching with tiny blue sparks fizzing from a gammy eye socket, which still glows faintly blue. And Superman to himself says, it's a robot. And then to the crowd, it's a robot. And then quietly to himself, Thank God. Then the robot bank robber lifts his good arm, still uh, clutching the souped up gun, and he fires spraying bullets indiscriminately into the crowd, the cars and its soups. The robot seems to be malfunctioning and is shooting up and down, left and right. Soups moves fast. He grabs a metal support beam from a construction site and zooms in and uses it to ping away all the bullets. Um, the gunner takes the smallest movement uh, to reload the gun in this kind of cool one-armed way. Um, and then he raises the gun again. Soups uh, took the briefest pause to take the beam, now holding it more or less like a bat. Um, but now he moves it and he's holding it like a javelin. He aims as the gunner sort of staggers forward and he throws the beam um, just as the gunner is about to fire, which flies through the air like a javelin. Uh, the beam shoots like a dart across the road. The crowd of spectators turn their heads left to right as if watching a super speed tennis match as the beam goes pow past them. The beam shoots straight into the gunner who takes it in the chest and flies back about 30 meters. The beam then sticking straight into a building pinning in there. And he's like um, pinned, hanging limp. And the blue light of his eye now dead, you know, goes out and the sparks die down. And a moment of stuns uh, quiet for a beat and Soups turns and looks uh, about to address the crowd when suddenly the driver of the getaway car bursts out from the wreckage. He too is messed up and his bits hanging off him and he still has his own gun and he staggers for a moment, his blue eyes searching, then they lock on to Soups. We might even have like a cheesy Terminator-esque blue POV with like a target going beep, 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 and finding Soups. And he fires straight at Soups. And Soups does a pure Superman returns, and he walks straight briskly straight towards the gunner who's firing at him. And the bullets, uh, you know, bounce off him um, as it hits him square in the chest. And we have a shot of the bullets landing at his feet as he goes all crushed um, and all bent and stuff. Uh, Soups covers the space in moments and is almost on the robot when the gun clicks empty. 
suit covers the last few steps just as the robot man pulls out a handgun from a holster, swings it to suit's face, and again pulls the trigger. The gun gives off a tiny, short, high-pitched whine, like it's like, Wee? but just before it can actually fire, Supes reaches the robot man, and he almost casually swats the handgun away with a backhand, sending it spinning off to shatter against the building some way away. Then in one smooth, continuous motion, Supes brings his other hand up in an uppercut, connecting under the robot's jaw, punching his head clean off, and the next stump sparks at the end, uh, as the head flies up, up and away, very, very fast, very far. And then we cut to a delicatessen about a mile away. And it's very busy with a lot of waiting customers. And a stressed waitress is serving a large sandwich to an impatient and rude businessman. And the man throws the sandwich down on the counter between them. And he says to the waitress angrily, I said no capers. So you tell me, what do you call that? Uh, then the window explodes as the robot's head sails in and smashes down on the end of the stainless steel counter, leaving a dent, and it bounces and rolls down the length of the counter, coming to a stop next to the sandwich. And there's a long beat, and the waitress looks up at the man and says, A head? Then a mile away, soup stands in front of the, uh, of the remains of the robot as the body falls down in a heap. The crowd around him cheer and clap, and Soup sort of waves good-naturedly but bashfully. Then his ears prick up, and we smash cut to the other two getaway cars that's still tearing away across the city. One car has two, and the other has three robbers in it, uh, some still wearing their goggles, but the others all have glowing blue eyes. Um, and anyone not driving is still firing at any pursuing police cars. Uh, one cop um, car and the driver and passenger and this passenger cop is leaning out of his own window and shooting back, and he hits one of the gunners who takes uh, the bullet to the chest, but continues to fire, apparently unharmed. Um, driving the lead car, the leader in the purple hat now sees a light wink off his uh, handhold re uh, reader, and he speaks into his radio, and the leader says, we've lost car three, so expect trouble to come flying in any second. Uh, one of the robbers, a suave one in the second car, speaks back, apparently connected to the radio, and the suave robber says, suggestions, boss? And the leader says, more firepower. At that, all the remaining gunners in both cars stop firing. A suave robot in the second car pulls open his jacket, exposing a pale chest. He then pulls his chest open, revealing the cavity within, all wires and flashing lights, pure beep-boop, and also two tubular can uh, canisters about the size and shape of a cardboard toilet roll tube. Um, Suave Robot reaches into his chest and pulls out one of these, which glow and pulse green. And Suave Robot, hanging off the back of his car now, looks at the cop cars pursuing and says, more firepower, got it. And he throws the glowing tube at the lead car, and it explodes in the road in front, making the driver cry out and swerve, and the explosion flips the car right end over end, sending it hurtling, corkscrew-style, crashing into a bus stop. And the uh, cops inside are in one piece, A-team-style, but sort of stagger out dazed. The two fleeing cars are still followed by a string of cop cars. Uh, the second car skids to a sudden halt, and the second robot on the second car opens his own chest, takes out a power source, throws it hard up, into the side of the Metropolis Empire State Building about, and about two thirds finished. 
and the robot has a good arm and he throws the power source high, 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 and it impacts um, on like the side of the building, causing a huge explosion and huge chunks uh, rain, rain down on top of the cop cars, um, which you know, screech to a halt and so forth. And we cut to high above the city, and here we go, suspended from under the, uh, the construction of the top of the Metro State Building is a long girder hanging horizontally and sitting, sitting along the length of uh, workers in the, uh, you know, in the classic pose, having a, a break, you know, smoking and eating sandwiches and stuff. As the explosion rocks the side of the building, the suspended girder shakes and they all like make shocked and alarmed noises and it looks like it's going to come undone. And one of the workers at the end slips and falls and it all judders and he yells as he plummets uh, the hundreds of stories to, uh, down to the street. And on the girder, everyone's yelling and like, ah, but then stupefied, they all stopped as the worker rises up in front of them. Uh, their stares and astonished faces. They see suits is ripping the back of this guy's collar and he sets him back down on the girder with uh, back next to his friends. And he uses his ray heat vision to make sure that the girder isn't going to fool and he wields it tight. Superman says, sorry about that. I hope this doesn't put you gentlemen off heights. It's your hard work that's built this fair city. And they gawk. And uh, Soups looks at the building's half-finished roof next to them. And then he turns and says, say, can I borrow that? And below, uh, the three robot shooters in the car from the second car are, uh, are stationary on the street below. And they're still firing their guns, tearing up the police cars, which were hit by the masonry, ripping them apart like tin. The three robot robbers make appreciated noises as the cops finally scatter and flee. Um, and and there, the robots cheering sounds a little bit like electronic, like, hey! Then as one, they stop and they stop firing and look up and the top uh, platform of the skyscraper's scaffolding plummets down at them, blocking out the sun, blocking out the sky. And it um, the whole circumference of the top of the building is about 10 meters by 10. And we have the robots POV as it just gets very large very quickly and then the suave robot says well damn we have a wide shot of the street uh, empty but for the crash getaway car and the robot robbers then the platform of metal and girders and scaffold comes down covering the entire street and the car and the robots crushing them immediately and utterly turning them in and the car into pancake and the fleeing cops look up and some wave their hats and some just stare as a blue blur shoots past towards the last car. And in the last car, now out of the city out of the city centre, the leader squawks an order at his passenger as the car comes to a stop at a sort of a top of a small rise in the road. And the passenger robot gets out and the leader floors it, peeling away, leaving the passenger on the road, who immediately opens his chest and he takes out both of his power sources and he squeezes them and they light up and a strong wine builds from both of them, and they're all this green, very bright. And he stands one power tube in each fist, and as they both glow green and stronger and stronger, the wine increases in volume. Uh, people on all sides uh, see this, and they flee, and the cops see this, and they flee, and the robot starts laughing, surveying all of this, his own laughter increasing in pitch and volume as he braces for the mother of all explosions. Then a vertical blur, and there before the robot man lands Soups, who shoots down and lands so fast and hard the ground webs from beneath his feet. 
the robot, frozen in victorious martyr pose, stares at him, and then as they stare, uh, standing face to face, less than a meter apart, Soups grabs both powering up containers from the robot's hands, and he rams them back into the robot's chest cavity and slams the little doors. Then he grabs the robot by the front. There's the briefest of brief moments of eye contact between the two, and then he just throws the robot man straight up, and the robot shoots up vertically like a rocket, and he reaches a good 500 feet. Uh, the momentum then drops, and for a second he hangs in the air on the cusp of falling back down, and then he explodes, a huge explosion, and tiny bits of metal and spring lightly rain down on the street far below. Uh, driving away, the leader robot sees the explosion in his rearview mirror and speaks into his radio. And he says, B, this is leader. It's Superman. Loot lost. Soldiers are down, save for me. I'm open to suggestions. And there's a staticky female voice replies from the dashboard speaker. And she says, suggestions? Well, here's a good one. Try to at least scratch his surface on the way out. And leader, seemingly slightly affronted, I can still make it. And B, the plans I had for you. You had the weapons, you had the resources, but now you have my disappointment. And then the familiar wine starts to build from within the leader's chest with a faint green light spilling out from the seams. And the leader is like, huh, over and out, huh? And B, over the speaker, says, that's a big 10-4. Just try to make a big mess. And leader, well, don't that just figure? And he floors the gas and the car leaps forward and he looks at the speedometer. It's reading 40, 50, building up. Uh, suddenly the dial moves, point all the way to the end. And the glass cracks and the dial snaps as the car shoots forward insanely. And the leader robot is forced back into his chair as the view from the windows turn into a blur and the car is moving insanely fast and now it lifts off up the, off the ground and we see now the car from the outside is off the ground moving diagonally up fast and steep with Superman behind holding it by the back bumper and they move up and away very fast indeed and from inside the car the wine from inside the leader's chest cavity continues to grow Soups holds the back bumper with one hand, puts his shoulder into it and throws the car like a shot put and it hurtles away uh, through the air, shooting up and over the Metropolis Bay and the leader inside the car is pinned right back in his seat and the papery skin of his face is sort of peeling and flapping off a bit under the G-force and his mouth is like stuck in a rictus grin and the green light spilling from inside his bright chest um, is brighter than ever and far above the bay the car explodes. And hovering at the edge of the uh, buildings overlooking the bay, Soups watches the remains slowly fall into the water. And he turns and he scans the streets and the area for anyone hurt. And seeing nothing, Soups turns, sort of still hovering, about to leave. And he sees next to him, about 10 metres away, looking out of the 40th floor window of a skyscraper, about two dozen office workers and secretaries. And they all stare right at Soups, who looks back at them all. And there's a moment when Soup kind of like raises his hand awkwardly and gives them a sort of like an informal little wave. And from his view, we see the very large window with you know no space, just faces crammed into it from every free angle. And they stare at Soup as this little awkward wave. And then as one, they all lose their minds and are all waving back manically, grinning and swooning and fanboying. And Soup gives them like one last little sort of salute and flies away over the city.
and that's your your basic setup. <laughs> it's so epic. The budget's I blown. I know. <laughs> I know. It's a biggie. It's a biggie. It's a it's a it's a make or break here, that's for sure. Um so uh this brewing war in Europe is mentioned more than once through all of this, and there's lots of like headlines and a lot of papers and stuff. Um, you know, there's the thing it comes up at some point that Lois wants to be sent over to Europe to cover the, these world stories, but Perry wants her to cover, you know, city-bound stories because that's where the American public's interests lie. And Lois says, like, world business is everyone's business. And Perry says, tell that to Superman, meaning Soups has been utterly non-committal about the brewing war, uh, with many believing that he will naturally fight for America, uh, others saying he'll fight for America's best interest, others the world's best interest, saying, others saying he'll abstain, which is leading to a lot of anti-suits backlash. And this is sort of running throughout. Um, but that's that's the first thing. But that, that, just to let you know. And also, again, I don't know if I'm going to call it Germany or get really specific, because, I, again, like I say, so it might just be sort of like, but it, is it more insulting if it's just like two made-up country names? I don't know. Um, so in I, anything, I think I'll... keep it Germany Sheps would be my one note, but yeah. I'm no bloody studio executive. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Me. Yeah, it's one. We'll, yeah, we'll see as it as it unfolds. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll test the water and see. Um, but in the meantime, we've had this opening, and now we um, we meet Abner Sedgwick, who I see actually played by the guy who played Professor Dent in Doctor No, and that's how I see him. But that's not on the cards. So make it that way you will. Uh, he's a brilliant scientist with a feverish mind. We immediately learn he is a genius and also not a nice person, belittling and bullying his small staff. He has a very large but financially wanting lab housed in the center of a derelict warehouse. He is working hard on his bid for Nobel Prize honors. Uh, this will be his 10th nomination and he's desperate for a win. And Abner in his lab, a bit manic says, this is the one they'll remember me for. That's a trailer moment. Uh, one of his berated lackeys informs him that the journalist from the Daily Planet is here for the interview. And Abner puffs out his chest and says, show him in. And Clark Kent enters. And Clark starts very fawning and playing up to Abner's ego. Uh, but soon some searching questions come out. And I'm, I, I wanted to lean in on the journalism angle, you know, for Clark and Lois. And that's a, a big thing I wanted to like, you know, sometimes I've just got like they investigate and do something clever. So it doesn't really go into it. But I want to sort of get into that investigative journalist stuff. because That's cool, especially this era as well. So we learn Clark's story is about Abner's research into meta tech, a new form of adapted hardware found from various sources and scrounged from things like alien encounters, AI hybrids and more. Uh, these, Clark suspects, are all linked to the weaponry used in the bank heist. Sedgwick thought that Clark's piece would be pro his work, but soon realises that Clark is digging into where exactly the raw materials have come from. Now using, you know, where, how did, you know, who supplied them for the experiments uh, which Adam is performing. How using potentially dangerous and untested tech, which has been flooding the black market, and it's dangerous to put it mildly, but also not worthy of pure scientific research, with Abner 
and the whole basis of his research standing on the shoulders of others with no real comprehension of what he's dealing with, and hence, is it worthy of a Nobel? Uh, Abner is furious by this line of questioning and kicks Clark out. You short-sighted fool, you're just like the rest, etc. At the door, Clark turns and he says back, uh, well, I'm sorry you feel that way, sir, but the American public has the right to know. And Abner says, you slug, you call yourself a journalist? And Clark, with a half smile, says, everyone needs a hobby. And we cut and we have a busy newsroom and it's big and busy, manic energy, ringing phones, countless hurried conversations and the click of a thousand typewriter keys being hammered. And the editor's office door opens and a gruff man emerges and he shouts, where's my self-proclaimed best reporter? And a lackey calls back, almost here, chief. And the editor looks at the across the busy newsroom at the lift dial as it climbs and the arrow moves up, reaching the floor and it dings and the camera pans down uh, from the arrow to the doors as they open and we reveal a bait and switch with hotshot journalist Max Menchin, uh, early 30s, bursts into the newsroom. Um, you could say that is, it could be Ma uh, Max Menkin as well, you could say. Uh, as he strides across the room, uh, we move in on the mammoth sign on the wall above countless clocks telling World City Times. And we see the name of the paper writ large on the wall, the Metropolis Star. And leaning out of his office door, which has printed on it, George Taylor, editor, Taylor shouts, you'd better have a story for me, Menkin. And Max strides to the middle of the newsroom right into a big close-up and he shouts, stop the press, chief. Superman's attacking the city. And uh, George Taylor says, that would do it. And we cut to Metropolis slums, a district in disrepair. Hooverville meets shoddy council shanty blocks, a 20-year-old wasteland of horrible conditions wrapped in loose brick. Uh, it's all dusty and dry. And from the Ridgeway Esh, uh, unfinished streets below, a small crowd are gathered and watch as a high above them, we see a familiar blue shape fly about. And uh, we move in for a closer look at these slums where indeed we see Soups is raising it and he flies and uses his fists and heat vision on the surroundings, smashing down tenement buildings, bursting through shanty squalor and staging controlled demolition of tower blocks. We don't learn at first what he's doing. And we're not sure why he appears to be attacking home turf, but it's soups, so I'm sure it's fine. A patrol car trundles up in a cloud of dust um, from the dry road, and Officer Hayfoot leans out of the driver's window, looks up at soups, pushing his hat far back on his head. And Hayfoot, you know, he's in his forties. He's, you know, he's he's got all this sort of like weathered quality. Um, and on his police radio, we hear HQ, Hayford, please report. And Hayford into the radio, still leaning out of his car door window, looking up at the sky, says, a pity it is on this day of woe, the man of steel rain downs blows. He's knocked through homes and leveled that street, all this malarkey, and I'm still on this beat. Uh, Hayford sees some spectators, and among them is Max Menkin. And he is asking uh, leading questions to those gathered, spreading toxic vibes. Uh, his is the fear-mongering negative reporting style. Hayford kind of wades in and breaks it up. Like, okay, okay. We learn that Max has contacted the National Guard to stop this super menace who's finally snapped, it seems. 
And it's at that moment they turn up in army jeeps and trucks with one small tank. The captain of the troops is a failed career military type in his 50s, washed up in an ill-fitting uniform. And he's all stirred up, Max's spiel clearly working on him. Hayfoot learns they are going to soon open fire on soups, no matter the potential collateral damage. Then, a car speeds up, engine over-revving like crazy. The driver seems not to, uh, to be unconcerned for public safety, tearing up way too fast, leaving uh, weaving a bit, barely in control, and it breaks hard and comes to a screeching stop, banging into an old telephone pole, which then slowly creaks, then teeters and falls over, crashing to the ground very close to landing on Hayford's car, and the impact of the pole on the dry ground wafts like a cloud of dust over Hayford and Max. And Hayford doesn't, uh, appears not to mind the dust, and he looks and says pointedly towards Max, Ah, at last, a real reporter. And the army captain says, What? Who? And Max visibly bristles and says, Oh no. And the car's door is thrown open, and Lois Lane explodes onto the scene like a dervish, and she immediately tears into Max, is spiky to Hayford, who is slightly smitten, with fast talk and faster actions. Hepburn turned up to 30. She takes in the scene, sees the large uh, gun turret slowly turning to point at Soups, uh, who's still hard at work, um, apparently oblivious to what's going on down here. And Lois says, say, what's the rub? I see scuffed boots on the ground and cheap uniforms on men. And she rounds on Hayford. Hey, officer, is that a tank turret or are you just an early riser? And uh, the captain takes a step forward to confront Lois, but Max steps in front of him, cutting him off. And Max says, back up, Lane. This is my scoop. And this time your big blue boy scout's gone too far. I see him like pointing at his chest with his thumb. Says that. And Lois is like, scoop? Ha! Maxie, the closest you've come to a scoop. You're in diapers and the ice cream in question was dropped on the floor. Max bristles and opens his mouth to retort, but is too slow as Lois continues. Now oh, I deny it. I can still see the tear stains on your cheeks. And then she rounds immediately back on Hayfoot and says, Say, Charlie, you're really going to stand here and let these jackanapes fire their bent tin on this hero of the city? And Hayford, I'm sorry, Miss Lane. I know I'm slow, but this right here, it's the captain's show. And Lane, captain, I don't see a captain, just a failed postal worker in a stolen uniform. And uh, the captain to one of his men. Sergeant, escort this woman out of here and prepare to fire. And Lane, sure, uh, good firing, just what the doctor ordered. Who we fire first, the incompetent captain or the snake in the grass journal? I can see the headline now. Army blows hard, city rings with muffled laughter. And the sergeant hesitates before Lois's planted form. And Max says, try listening for once, Lane. This is the captain's show. Show, huh? Well, let's get to work on the curtain call. And uh, the captain is poised to order to fire the gun. And Lois takes out her notepad, brandishing it like a gun, and says, you, gonna fire your guns now? Straight into the crowd, huh? Can I grab a quote before you murder innocents, or should I wait till after lunch? Lois now uh, reveals that, uh, that what Soups is doing is what the government refused to do and is clearing out the dilapidated death traps. It's all evacuated, of course, and by doing this, Soups is forcing those in power to rebuild, making clean, affordable homes for those who need it. And the captain, stammering, says, 
for we received word that Superman was attacking the city. And Lois looking daggers at Max. Yeah, well, don't believe everything you're told, Captain, unless it's from a reliable source. And taking his cue from Lois and not his captain, the army gunner lowers the large gun. At that moment, Supes floats down and lands gently in front of the captain, Hayford and Max, but ignores them completely and steps up to Lois. And he says, good afternoon, Miss Lane. Are you ready for the interview? And the captain stares and Hayford grins and Max looks ready to explode. And Lois says, ready when you are, Superman. And we cut. It's like a few days later. Lois's uh, positive and humane story has been like a big smash hit for the paper. And it's even been addressed in Congress and embraced by the public. And the planet sells loads of editions. And she is lauded once again as a genius reporter. And she wraps it up. Um, meanwhile, at the rival at the star, Max is seething. His, uh, in his mind, he's been gazumped once again. And he's humiliated, chewed out by his editor, despite his protest that he's, his anti-soup slam piece was corrupted by Lois's pro-soups propaganda. Uh, editor George Taylor says, all you've done is make this paper look bad and your editor like a chump and yourself. Why, Max, you look like the biggest chump there is. Uh, at the um, by the way, George Taylor was what Perry White was originally called in the early edition, so it's a little nod to that. At the planet, well, we learn. Uh, yeah, yeah. At the planet, we learn that Clark has been busy making a name for himself as the paper's second best journalist. Um, now, as a running joke all the way through the film that he's got this really shitty desk right in the middle of the newsroom, which is just a sea of like mania and crazy shouting and crazy, crazy you know journalists typing and being nuts. Um, and he's always like, but there's always also people always in his desk and he always tries to get them to move. But they're like, knock it off, Kent. Can't you see I'm busy? Like click, clack, click, clack, talking on the phone, making bets. And Clark's too meek to like, that's my desk. Um, and there's a sort of a running thing that he keeps like pestering Perry for like his own office. Um, uh, through banter now, we learn uh, Clark's piece about Abner and the Metatech has hit the stands to acclaim and that Abner has now lost his 10th Nobel Prize win in a row. Uh, Clark has also been writing think pieces about the slums of Metropolis for some months now, but the government and City Hall continue to turn a blind eye despite growing sympathies from the public. So Soups has now torn it down and, and all of that, and now he's actually helped them set foundations for like rebuilding and stuff like that, with charitable sponsorship being set up um, through soups with the help from various large PR thinking firms, including the planet. Um, this was all, uh, this all further undermines the star and Max, who have all been pro City Hall and against the quote unquote wastefulness of spending on rebuilding cheap and you know, homes for the poor, many still struggling nine years post crash. Max is stewing in uh, the self-perceived slights against him by the rivals. Um, he's established as being deeply patriotic, but also with very strong, like, America for Americans vibes. His byline is filled with protest against America potentially joining the war, which is still looming in Europe. Uh, Not our war is a constant headline he goes with. Uh, Max is determined to prove himself to be the best, hopefully discrediting Lane and his rivals at the planet in the process. Now at his desk in the madness of the newsroom in the planet, Clark is praised by Perry 
in front of a few journos and office bots. And Perry is like, well done, Kent. From the seed of your story, great things have grown, referring to Lois taking Clark's initial story and turning it into a national sensation. The four or five gathered uh, around nod and murmur, and there's like a small kind of congrats, Clark, who is also patted on the back by Jimmy, making him positively glow. Uh, the small crowd starts to disperse when they're stopped as unasked Clark suddenly uh, launches into a small, apparently prepared thank you speech. And he jumps to his feet. You know, thank you, Mr. White, bolts to his feet. You know, when I sat my mother down all those years ago, I, I said to her, Ma, I'm going to be a journalist. My mother, she looked at me with a pride I hadn't seen before. And my mother said, son, she said, son, you'll finally be able to make a difference. And the crowd is like, ah, like around Clark, but they're like desperately trying to just move away. But he keeps sort of stopping them because he says, and what is journalism? Other than making a change to shine a light in the darkest corner and to shout the truth, to show the... Just then, Lois enters the newsroom and every single person present stands and bursts into applause towards her, drowning out Clark and all attention to him is instantly lost as the entire newsroom flopped to Lois, leaving him standing totally alone, looking awkward. Um, and Clark doing that speech just now is 100% uh, Doc Boy in the Christmas Garfield special when he gives says grace so now we cut back to Abner and he of course is furious about Clark's piece about him and his terrible reputation and now within the scientific community he, uh, we now have a meeting between Abner and a shady sort a quiet thoughtful man who we find has has been in league with Abner for some months, and he has been supplying the raw materials for these experiments. This man, um, who could be Toby Jones, is now revealed to be a Nazi spy. Acting as a go-between, he's been making profit from selling uh, Abner's work back to the crime lords of the city. The, gun to disrupt, uh, the goal is to disrupt America from the inside before any potential future war has even begun. Nazi man now seizes on Abner's rage to present a grade A freshly harvested raw materials as super tech to him, giving Abner free reign as quote unquote the leader who is Hitler, but he might be named as Hitler, but maybe just the leader or whatever, um, the, the chancellor. Uh, he wants his own supermen in the upcoming war, and Abner's new rage seems to be the gateway to this success. So Abner, bitter against the Nobel board uh, and as well as against the American public, and of course the press who misrepresented him, accepts. So in his lab now, he experiments with all this new semi-organic, semi-mechanical matter on himself, and guess what? It goes wrong. And the alien tech fuses with him in a painful looking scene of robotic body horror. Abner screams as electrodes burrow through his skull into his brain. His skin melds with wires and liquid metal and his body <laughs> withers and his head expands. You now, definitely said Soderbergh and not Raimi, didn't you? I remember. I remember or Cronenberg for that matter. Yeah, true. <laughs> but um, you know what? It could be Superman 3 level, you know, um, in terms of this sort of machine stuff. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be as bad as it sounds. Well, of course, I would like it to be, but I, I would like this to be, you know, a PG, ultimately, or a 12, I guess. Um, 
So if this was released in 82, I'd like to think it would be in 84. Um, so, so yes, all is enhancing his mind and depleting his body as he screams, turning him into the ultra-humanite across between the Mars Attacks Martians, the Mekon, and Brainiac. Withered body, but massive brainy head, T-Fowl, futuristic silver spacesuit with huge glass dome overhead protecting his feeble body and keeps him in oxygen and stuff for his mega mind and makes him look cool, quote unquote. This naturally is the film's big band, bad. Um, so the ultra humanite, yeah, uh, massive brain, funny eyes. The staff members still working for Abner are now either killed or converted, borged up into mindless drone cyborg things. One tries to flee, but Ultra now sends out a wibbly effect through uh, the beam from his brain. Uh, it goes boop, 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 across the room to the lackey, and the lackey freezes and against his will turns back and lies down in front of Ultra on this gurney waiting for surgery. And Ultra uh, says, the power to control minds, and soon so much more. And the lackey can only lie helplessly as standing over him, Ultra brandishes like a tiny drill, like a whirling little pizza cutter, which whines as he lowers it down towards the lackey's cranium, whose wide eyes reveal his helpless awareness of what's happening. And the camera then moves out of the room just as the whine changes and the drill becomes like you know, the drill bit hits bone. Um, cut. Lois and Clark have further uh, been on the trails of the source of the future weaponry hitting the streets. Clark has a lead, and in a dick move, Lois steals it from under him, leaving Clark with a dead end, taking the juicy lead for herself. And this is one of several examples which happen throughout the film, showing that Lois values story more than anything, more than friendship, or love, or professional courtesy. She is ruthless and doesn't mind who she steps on. And that's where, how she got there today, but does that justify it? Now, Lois is on the trail of this Nazi spy who journeys to Abner's lab, housed still, you know, in the center of this abandoned warehouse by the docks uh, to see the progress of the experiment. Uh, so the Nazi goes in and as Lois is following him, we reveal that Max is in turn following her, planning on gazumping Lois for once. Inside the secret lab, Lois discovers Max on her tail, and they have a whispered bicker hiding down behind some crates. But nonetheless, they follow the Nazi to the center of the lab, where they witness now ultra-humanite. And Nazi is displeased with this, and he's like, I wanted a man to fight for glory, a superman. And what do I find? An embarrassment, a withered weakling who looks like a fool and speaks like an American. And this angers ultra-humanite who mocks the Nazi, mocks the leader, uh, and has a bit of a rant himself, saying all men lack vision, which now he has acquired. And Ultra says uh, to the Nazi, you seek power? Well, behold, the power to rain fire on heaven itself. And Nazi is having none of it. And he says, all I hear are the rantings of the insane. This is not what was required. This is a failure. An ultra-humanite, so are you. And he raises up to an impressive full height, a good eight foot, and you know, with his spindly body, and he blasts uh, the Nazi with a skanky ray from his brain stem that shoots out from his dome in a zag zagged bolt of crackling energy. 
and it hits the Nazi who screams and then bursts into a pile of smouldering red pebbles. Lois and Max watch from their hiding place. This all freaks Max out, who loses his cool and bolts, making a bit of a noise and exposing their presence. Ultra shoots a bolt and Lois must flee too. Uh, Abner's ex-lackeys, uh, the cyborg drones, uh, some of them are pursuing Lois as she legs it through the warehouse, but they are stupid and um, Lois tears off. Ahead, Max makes it to the fire exit, gets out, he hesitates, and then he closes the large heavy metal door, trapping Lois inside, and then he starts to you know, run down the metal ladder. Uh, Lois makes it to the door and finds it sealed. The drones now stalk Lois as uh, Ultra advances unseen. Hiding among the huge metal shelves, Lois takes some large glass bottles which contains different types of marked clear liquid. And he op she opens one and throws the clear liquid all over the floor. And as Ultra gets closer, she gets reaches and gets another different bottle, opens that, and then does likewise and throws it on top. Now, she thinks, because I saw MacGyver do this in an episode and he created dry ice to escape. And she obviously saw the same episode in 1938 because she thinks that's what's going to happen. But instead it fizzes and sparks and then explodes and combusts. And it turns volatile and Lois is like, whoa! And she runs as it fizzes and erupts just as the drones close in and Ultra sees her firing a bolt at her back just as she leaps towards a large window and then the compound on the floor spreads like lightning and explodes, causing the beam to actually miss Lois as she flies through the window and then plummets down into the bay with a splash. And then the explosion inside causes a chain reaction, igniting the entire warehouse, causing the whole building to detonate, destroying the lab and the drones. And then it sort of all clears all the sort of flaming debris, uh, revealing Ultra standing in the middle of it all unharmed, uh, in um, sort of protected by a, an energy bubble, which is emanating again from his massive brain. Um, and uh, so, so he's there. Meanwhile, all of this explosion, Max, uh, his own sabotage, sabotaged him, and he was thrown from the fire escape by the blast, and he lands unconscious in the alley below. And we see now his body lying there among all the bins and things. Uh, and then a shadow moves over him, and then in a wide shot, we see the ultra-humanite as he stands over Max. And we cut back to the planet as Lois drying her hair, sitting on Clark's desk, dripping all over his work. Um, and she's telling her story to Clark and Jimmy and Perry with emphasis on her amazing escape. And um, Clark berates her and um, asks apparently for the millionth time why she won't accept a watch like Jimmy, which emits when you press the button, a high-pitched alarm, which only soups can hear, which alerts him if the wearer is in trouble. And that's from the comics, Jimmy has that watch. But Lois is like, uh, she scoffs and says, I'm no one's damsel, Clark. And Jimmy sort of weakly says, oh, and I am? And Perry says, all your life, kid. And Clark, but gee, Lois, how do you know the formula would be so combustible? And Lois, you've got no faith in my brain whatsoever, do you, Clark? And Clark stammers, and Perry says, knock it off, Lois. Everyone knows your strengths lie in your writing. They do not lie, however, in chemistry or math or anything scientific. And Lois opens her mouth to protest, but Jimmy pops his head into the conversation and says, 
or giving directions. And Lois like, give me a, and Clark says, oh, patience. And Perry <laughs> winces as he takes a sip of coffee, says, oh, making coffee. And Clark says, oh, and Lois is like, all right, all right. I thought by <laughs> mixing two jars, it'd do just like, you know, what did we learned at that science fair last year? Remember Clark, you mix carbon, and Perry says dioxide. They say, yeah, yeah, and you mix it with uh, water, and Clark says oxygen, and Lois is like, right, and then it creates like this mist, right? So I thought it would provide cover and I'd escape, and Clark, and I'm guessing the two jars did not contain either of these elements. And Lois, well, it exploded, so I guess maybe not. Um, but you know, you never know, right? And Jimmy and Perry and Clark all at once go, no. And Lois is gutted, and Lois mumbles to herself, worked, didn't it? Uh, meanwhile, we cut back to Max, groggily opening his eyes, finding him strapped to a gurney, his head securely fastened and immobile, and around him are many banks of flashing and beeping equipment, while the walls of rock and they appear to be underground. Max can only see his immediate surroundings, and then a voice directly by his ear makes him yell out in surprise. And Ultra says, Forgive the squalor. My last lab met with an accident, but my new workstation has advantages. Quiet, private, and very convenient for city centre commutes. Uh, Ultra steps back, now looming over Max, who in horror realises that Ultra is going to perform surgery on him. An ultra-humanite is now uh, plugged into a higher plane of consciousness, he says, mixed with deep curiosity about all aspects of humanity. He wants to know everything. And he asks Max why he tried to portray Lois. And Max spills, an ultra-humanite digs his petty and toxic emotions. And Ultra says, my initial experiments on creating drones and soldiers was mixed, but you appear to be a special case. So I shall adapt and lean into such proclivities. And Ultra now leans over him with some that spinning and whirring space age scalpel pizza thing again, which emits a horrible high pitched whine as it descends towards Max's cranium. And Max said, We have a pull out. And Max says, No, no. And we move away out of the subterranean chamber, hearing Max's screams and the high pitches whine uh, again turns into a drilling sound. To Lois, Clark has learned of this new threat, uh, you know, who she saw, the ultra-humanite. But um, so as suits, he laps around and he scans the city, but uh, it reveals nothing with no sign whatsoever of this new menace. Still on the trail of the supertech weapons, with the Nazi dead and the warehouse and lab destroyed, Clark and Lois's only lead for this story now lies with whoever organized the opening robbery, because uh, they had the guns. According to Lois, Superman heard the leader of the robot robbers speak to someone on the radio, a female someone referred to as B. And Clark is like, could, he, could that be Queen B, the crime lord? And Perry says, either that or one hell of an apparist. With cool investigative techniques, Lois and Clark track the stolen metaguns to this crime lord of the city known only as Queen B. She has been building her empire with Nazi-supplied, Abner-perfected supertech. Clark and Lois know of B's lair, which is a plush casino lounge bar. And B has uh, had run-ins with Lois and Clark many times before. If this were a TV show, she'd be a semi-regular. But this time, they've stuck their noses in too far. And now, Anne's in the air, surrounded by her goons who brandished like more crazy-looking weapons, 
Queen Bee is about to order the journalist's execution. And Clark is bracing to act when suddenly the wall explodes and a new figure emerges, a very large man, muscular Jimmy, um, wearing a, a sort of a bandana style bandito mask over the top half of his face um, and with a long purple cloak billowing behind him. The goons, uh, Lois Clark and Queen Bee, stare a moment as the dust settles. The huge man is carrying two massive assault phaser rifles, one in each hand, pointing up at the ceiling, resting on each shoulder. And the man says, Queen Bee, your reign of terror is over. These weapons have a greater purpose than your petty profiteering. And Queen Bee says to the room, who the hell's this guy and why is he still alive? As one, all dozen or so of her goons who are surrounding Lois and Clark now turn to this new figure and open fire with their Tommy guns on him. Uh, still with their hands raised, Lois and Clark wince and watch as the gunfire fills the room. After a long and loud battery of bullets, all guns now power down and start smoking. The deafening noise fades and as the gun smoke thins into haze, it's revealed all goons still pointing their now empty guns at the figure who is standing there apparently untouched and unharmed. B is watching transfixed and as uh, the last of the smoke fades and we reveal that Lois is standing still hands up but now next to her is just an empty space and she's by herself. A beat then the man standing in hero pose with the guns speaks in a booming and strong voice. I am Americamando and I am here to help. He brings the guns down to point at the room and he opens fire. The goons scatter, the trail of bullets smash across them and through the room. Uh, Queen Bee dives for cover behind her desk. Her men scatter as the room explodes and Lois is caught in the middle, unable to move except hop, hop from foot to foot as a thousand bullets whiz past her, smashing into Bee's lair as Americamando sprays liberally. A twin trail of bullets now race across the room, tearing up the floor, chewing up tables and chairs and upholstery and the bar and the dance floor, streaking straight for Lois. Superman flies through the window and he stands in front of Lois, shielding her just as the bullets reach her. Uh, he then shoots around the room and does the same for bees, cowering goons, shielding everyone he can. The gunfire stops and we have a wide high shot of the room. The once plush lounge is ripped up Everything is smashed as feathers from cushions float and settle. Behind her desk, lying on the floor, Queen Bee is spinning the dial, opening her floor safe. The remaining goons are crawling or limping away as Soup stands in the centre of the room with Lois behind him, fingers in her ears. Americamando says to Soups, You disrupt the flow of my justice, alien, so now I turn my flow to you. And Lois, still behind Soups, says, Ew. Superman scans and reacts, surprised, disgusted, pitying as he scans this man in front of him and says, what have you done to yourself? Your whole body has been augmented, billeted, spliced, perverted. Americamando, I was once a mere man. Now I am the soldier this great nation needs and you, Superman, are done. He flips a button on each of his pulse guns, which then make a whirring up noise as they go supercharged. And Soups' eyes widen and he shouts, Lois, duck! Americamando fires and two laser uh, pulses of ribboned energy shoot out and hit Soups in the chest, 
making him fly back across the room to crash into the remaining bottles above the bar, and he lands uh, half-conscious on the floor behind the bar. Romero Commando now turns the guns on Lois, who is crouched in the centre of the floor, and Romero Commando says, And you, Miss Lane, looks like this is one story I've finally beaten you to. And Lois stares a moment, and then her eyes go huge, and she says, unbelieving, Max? And Romero Commando, no longer. The ultra-humanite has sparked my evolution. And while he talks, we see that Soups is still unconscious behind the bar. And back to Romero Commando, I once was a gutter smith as you are, but print is dead, Miss Lane, and now so are you. And the guns start to power up, and he's about to fire at Lois, who flinches when Queen Bee stands up from behind her desk, now holding a large super gun of her own, uh, and of the same type from the bank robbery. And B shouts, hey, this club is members only. And she fires from the super machine gun and it hits uh, Amara Commando full on. And he falls back as B empties the clip into him. After a long moment, she stops firing the, and, and the gun powers down chain gun style. And she looks from where she stands when Lois is still crouched in the center and the two women look to each other for a moment. They have this shared history and even kinship between them for a second, even though minutes ago she was about to kill Lois. And B's eyes shine with excitement and she gives Lois a little smile of victory. And Lois even sort of smiles back and they look to the form of a man commando and the smoke again clears and they see a purple cocoon covering his form and it unwraps itself from him. And we see it is his cape, which is now moving freely, shielding him from the bullets. Now, anyone now who wants to scream Doctor Strange to me, I can only say back 1938, man. Uh, it now parts, the cape parts, and he straightens up and he looks at Queen Bee and he points a gun at her. And America Manu says, you can't beat me, I am America. And he fires and Queen Bee is blown back, flies into the wall behind the, um, and crashes to the wall and falls to the ground. And she's twisted and dead. And he turns his, back to, uh, his guns back to Lois, just as Soups emerges up from behind the bar. An American commando aims at Lois and pulls the trigger. Soups fires twin heat rays from his eyes, slicing the gun in half. American commando rounds on him, bringing up his second gun. Soups stays standing upright as he half flies, half hovers uh, out across the room as American commando fires at him, exploding the wall behind Soups. Now Soups is flying again, kind of horizontally. I mean, ver yeah, vertically, I mean, standing straight up. Uh, moving, frankly, as if he's on a hoverboard, and Soups fires back, shooting with his eyes, but not one long beam, but rather sending like bursts from his eyes in rapid succession, like a mini machine ray guns from his eyes. Like, pow, 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 pow. Uh, so American Mando moves, running left to right as he fires and runs, and Soups skims across the room opposite, left to right, firing back with his eye bolts. It's all very, very John Woo, actually. Uh, Soups is winged by a bolt from the gun, and American Mando is clipped by a heat blast, yeah, but his cape again comes in front and deflects the brunt. Uh, he still spins and staggers back as Soups rounds on him, when American Mando brings out a large egg-shaped device, which he squeezes and drops, and it starts to whine and build up in pitch, and Soups looks from the egg to American Mando to Lois. American Commando grins and turns to bolt. Soups makes an instantaneous choice, shoots over to Lois, grabs her, and moves like a blur, and the egg reaches the top of its wine and explodes, 
And outside the building, we see the blue blur of soups shooting out from the upper window, and then the entire lair is blown out and destroyed in a massive fireball. Uh, in the park across the street, ducks panic and fly from the little pond as soups now comes down and gently places Lois on the grass next to an old man with a bag of bread. Um, and she's a bit shaky, but otherwise okay. And she sort of comes to her senses in a sudden panic of energy. And she says, Superman, that man or whoever he was, it's Max Menkin. He's a reporter or was a reporter. I don't know what could have. He mentioned the ultra thing and Superman's ultra humanite. I'm guessing that's the being you ran into recently. And Lois like, right. And she's slightly confused, like, oh, did, did I tell him that? And Superman's, someone is converting advanced technology into living, breathing weapons. And Lois, yeah, well, so let's go and Superman. Best stay here a moment and catch your breath. You'll be relieved to know your Mr. Kent is unharmed and escaped out the back. And Lois is sort of, a, again, momentarily confused. But then she like remembers, like, Clark, oh, right, good. And Superman like actually has like hides his genuine but unsurprised sadness at the fact that Lois just totally wasn't forgotten about Clark. And he's like, goodbye, Miss Lane. And he rises up and flies off. And Lois is like, moment, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lois is like to herself, sure, I'll catch my breath. The only thing I'm looking to catch is the mother of all stories. And she hurries off, leaving the, the man alone by the pond with his bread. Um, looking around for ducks who are longer from. Uh, by the way, every time America Mando now appears, his suit and weaponry are, have been modified, meaning the more uh, he has more abilities as it goes along, stronger, faster, more durable, um, receiving upgrades from Ultra Humanite. Meanwhile, Ultra Humanite's powers and base of operations continue to grow. In his subterranean lair, which consists of different chambers and levels, Ultra has constructed, uh, we see like new equipment and machinery. We see one uh, such device is a huge drill, which is all streamlined in chrome with a big drill bit and powerful frame. And he's also scanning and um, with sort of floating probes and drilling probes um, and little camera probes. And he's also scanning ultrasonic readings and charts from deep underground, apparently analyzing areas toward the Earth's core. Uh, scanning and doing grid searches. And he continues to use his uh, mental abilities to control men's mind. And he's doing this, keeping soups off his trail by like having everyday folk go out and cause chaos, shooting up streets in cars, you know, driving off bridges, uh, a teacher breaking off halfway through a class to walk to the window and like leap from the high floor of the school. And soups is like running all over the place, flying all over the place, pushed to his limits, catching and stopping these disasters, aware he's being kept busy and out of the way, but there's nothing he can do about it. We have a few scenes uh, during all of this between Ultra Humanite and America Commando, as he's like doing shit to his suit. <clears throat> and we have kind of like sort of informal moments actually between them, where they're sort of not playing to the crowd as it were. And Ultra learns from America Mano uh, via Max's previous investigations, that humans are easily controlled um, with thought uh, power and telekinesis and so forth, but actually not as easily as Kryptonians have been proved to be, uh, whose frontal lobes are designed wider, differently, allowing for more susceptibility to such mind control, which is, by the way, also from the comic. So we have one or two scenes between Ultra and American Mando 
where we learn of their philosophy. So the Maricomando wants revenge on everyone who wronged him, who made him feel second rate or weak. And he sees America as needing to be defended against all who would have it dragged down into, quote, irrelevant outside concerns. And ultra-humanite is fascinated by this concept and also the concept of revenge, craving this himself. Uh, and But this fascination has uh, spread, removed now from humanity. He is intrigued by the makeup of all negative human behavior. He wants to know how every synapse of every brain works and why. And he also wants to rewrite the building blocks of this reality, reshaping through his ever-growing organic tech, rebuilding everything. And his end game is con uh, converting the Earth's population, humanity becoming a colony of his enhanced children, who were then spread out into the stars. <clears throat> America Mando says, your plans are impressive, your goals limitless, you have no fear. And Ultra, oh, the only thing to stop my ambition is death. And the only thing that scares me is being alone with my thoughts. America Commando. I used to be so scared of failing, scared of everything, scared of my rivals. And uh, Ultra says, well then, it seems your choice now is obvious. Face your fears. And we cut back to the planet in Perry's office. Lois is furious that Perry has given the Queen Bee tech story to Clark, showing again that she's a, a very career driven at the expense of all. And Clark calls her out on this and she's like, duh. I've been alienating people since third grade. And Clark, like, as late as that. You know, Lois, to be the best sometimes means helping others be the best they can be. And Perry, looking up from his ear, says from his desk, save it for the Sunday supplements, Kent. Uh, during all of this, as the three talk, and Jimmy comes in with a tray of coffee for everyone, in the background behind Perry and behind the desk, um, slightly out of focus through the large windows looking out over the city, um, we see like a window washer platform being like raising up on a pulley. Um, and again, it's that all out of focus with like Perry in the foreground and stuff. But we see a, a man standing, raising up on this platform outside the window, uh, unnoticed, facing them through the window as he rises up into frame. Meanwhile, Lois, accepting coffee from Jimmy, says, it's a wide, wide world of lies and cheats, Clark. Yet you still act surprised when I don't live up to your self-appointed value system. And Clark is, um, I guess I'm always hoping this will be the, th the time you'll show value for something beyond the page first. And Lois, oh Clark, how can someone who's seen so much and exposed even more in this cesspool of a planet still be so painfully gullible, so insultingly naive? And Clark considers a beat and says, practice? Lois makes a <clears throat> noise and turns back to rant at Perry. Just then, Clark's attention shifts. We move in on Clark's ear as his expression changes, and he cocks his head just a fraction as he listens. We have a focus change, and behind the four in the office, we clearly now see the figure who stopped outside the window, and it's America Mando. He holds up and cocks his two supercharged mega guns, which now load instantly with a very quick whine and then click. And inside, Clark recognizes the sound and slowly turns to the window, just in time to see America Mando point the guns inside the room. And Clark begins the first second of a gasp, and we have a big close-up of America Mando's gloved finger as it squeezes the trigger, which starts to sort of creak under the slow-motion strain. 
we go into ultra slow-mo as we hear the crack of his leather glove as he squeezes the trigger, the movements of the mechanism within the guns turning and clicking and sparking, uh, starting the ching action to fire, the chamber within the gun locks, the magazine clicks up, the hammers make a clunk noise and then a double chunk and then the first rounds of super bullets are hit and expelled from the barrels in a flaming gaseous cloud. We go back into normal speed and we see Clark has just enough time to show the beginnings of surprise and horror as he starts to dart to the side as Lois and the others still remain oblivious to the assassin meters away. Uh, the glass explodes as hundreds of rounds from each gun fire insanely rapid fire into the office. Then we go back into super slow-mo. We see the bullets coming out um, of the barrels with almost no space between them, just like bullet nose touching bullet base and so on, like a long line of nearly connecting metal. Uh, the back of Perry's office with the windows explodes in a, a showered powdered glass and wood and plaster and concrete. And now almost real time, Clark whizzes like as a blur pew, 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 across the office and we see Perry, etc., flinch and duck and, uh, as the windows shatter and they're hit by a deafening sound, but no bullets or anything else. Uh, behind them, the window and door to Perry's office leading to the newsroom remains in one piece and you have no bullets hit behind them either. Americano stops firing for half a second in, uh, to, in time to see his targets instinctively flinching and half crouched, but unhurt. And he frowns and he clicks the guns again. But before he can fire more bullets from beneath Perry's desk, pretending to cower in terror, uh, Clark takes aim over his glasses and fires heat vision, snapping one of the cables of the lift, causing it to fall half and dangle, causing Americano to drop his gun to grab and hold onto the side. He's hanging from the swinging platform. Uh, Lois, without even thinking, rushes to the window and leans out and immediately offers her hand to Americano, who snarls and lets go, falling. Clark is about to move, but Americano's cape now comes to life and carries him away like a flying carpet. It's all happened in a few seconds, and while Lois is staring from the window and Perry and Jimmy are still reacting, Clark is out of uh, the door to the office and away, and Clark runs through the very busy offices. We have a shot where he slows, taking off his glasses, just as he stops for a beat, now obscured by a large water bottle from the office water cooler um, in the immediate foreground, showing Clark like through the water um, sort of diffused. And someone's hand in the immediate foreground comes in uh, and pushes the tap, filling up a paper cup, uh, making three or four huge bubbles rise and blop to the surface of the water container. And through this plastic bucket, through the water, we see Clark um, and you're in his suit and stuff. And as the largest bubble rises up, it blurs the image and then pops on the surface, revealing now the distorted image clears and we see red and blue and a swish of the cape and uh, Superman is revealed through the water and he runs off and we just see the person take a glass, you know, drink it from the paper cup. And it's a real Shane Rimmer moment. He's like, looks around, he's like, nah. And cut to outside the planet, a soup flies out of a window and away. And meanwhile, uh, back inside the half-destroyed office, Lois is torn off now, leaving Perry and Jimmy alone, looking at the three or four walls untouched by bullets, and then the other wall basically just gone, and they're looking out over the city. And Perry says, like, we'll be a flapping 
papers on his desk. He says, I don't understand it. It's one thing that, that he's the worst aim since blind Billy Boggs and somehow missed all of us, but where the hell are the bullet holes? Come to that, where are the damned bullets? And Jimmy acknowledges this, uh, reminds himself he's still holding his cup of coffee mug, and he takes a swig, but then grimaces and tips out a hundred odd bullets from the coffee cup in, onto the desk. And he and Perry look at the other dumbly. Uh, outside, we have a chase over the city as Superman pursues a Marikomando, um, who's still carried on his magic carpet-style cape. Um, it doesn't go at super speeds, but they have a ziggy-zaggy cool chase, and he's very cunning. And he's firing pulses um, at soups along the way, and he's having to be uh, like you know, avoided. Um, now, Marikomando swoops down city level and actually flies down into the underground um, and flies down the tunnel of a subway, um, and fires ahead, causing the mouth of the tunnel to collapse um, as he flies through the subway and the tunnels with soups on his trail. Um, underground, the, the actual subway itself, the train, the tube, rushes um, straight for the blocked tunnel entrance. The driver sees this and he goes to hit the brakes, but in his lair, he cut to ultra-humanite, and he's watching everything by psychic links, but also insanely advanced micro-camera drones that are flying all over the place who can watch everything. So now Ultra reaches out with his mind, and again, we see the boop, 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 boop from his brain, uh, and we see the, uh, the train driver lose focus, and like a sleepwalker, he, he takes his hand away from the brake and re-engages the accelerator, speeding the train right at the wreckage blocking the tunnel and we see all the passengers on board freaking out because the train's going so fast soups is forced to abandon his pursuit he's about to catch um america commando but he has to go back and he grabs the high-speed train and he uses its momentum and he fires ahead with his eyes and they go up through the remains of the collapsed tunnel mouth and there's like three or four cars connected you know carriages of the train and they all fly up and the momentum takes it all up out of the subway uh, and he and soups lays it all down um the entire train outside uh, the street level commuter entrance and soups leans into the uh, driver's cab and checks out the driver who's coming to now and seems unhurt but confused and then soups reaches into the cab and operates the door release opening all of the train doors and on the street now a lot of passengers and passers-by are looking very confused as the passengers are stumbling out looking dazed and soups now flies up and hops onto the train roof and addresses uh, these passengers and he says ladies and gentlemen i'm very sorry for the disruption of your journey and delays this may cause if you take your tickets to a registered vendor he or she will gladly offer a full refund Public transport is a staple of this city and remains the cleanest, fastest, cheapest way to commute. And the crowd just <laughs> stare, mouths slightly agape. And then Soup scans for Sky but finds no trace of American Mando and flies away. Um, so we have like more sort of scenes focusing on Europe. Maybe we, you know, we just hear um, through like just secondhand stuff. Or read all about it, read all about it. Uh, the German army, I'm just gonna say it. The German army is marching across the continent fast approaching the smaller country of Poland and uh, black and white newsreel shows a scene as snowy landscapes where two armies are now gathering on the border between the two countries and the newsreader and voiceover with, uh, says like 
With the stage being set for the first battle of this planet's new world war, the armies converge. And, you know, it's said like when the German army, they're told if they cross the border, then the, the Polish army will fight back. And this isn't how it happened. And it's so literal. And that's why I don't want it to be insulting. But that, yeah, so we'll, we'll just go with it. Um, so the newsreel shows tanks and divisions approaching the border between countries in Europe. And if the invading army crosses the border, it will mean a second world war. We see uh, news commentaries and, and words and from the men on the street, some with our angry voices saying that, like in interviews, like, Superman is here to save, uh, you know, what, three people here, 10 people there. But where is he when we really need him and stuff like that? And others, including world leaders and the minister of the country about to be invaded and everything, we all publicly beseech Superman to intervene to stop the approaching army from Germany. And we have a scene of Lois and Perry debating this hotly with Clark desperately trying to stay out of it. And Perry says Superman should intervene and stop uh, the advancing army in Europe. And Clark is still like not able to sit at his desk, but so he's there hovering and he says, you know, he, he remains horribly torn. And Lois says, this is not Superman's fight. This is not what he's here for. And Lois, uh, she says like, He's not here to fix humanity's self-made problems. He's not here to save us from ourselves. He's here to find the best in us, not just justify the worst. And this speech by Lois has a profound effect and releases Clark from his guilt. And through her eyes, he now sees his original mission with renewed clarity and Lois gives him strength. Uh, Jimmy is uh, tired of getting coffee and is finally assigned uh, by Perry to follow up Clark and Lois's pieces about the old slums and how the new development on the old slums on the site and how, how that's going to get some pictures of the follow-up story. So Jimmy goes to the building site. It's all flattened with some trains and stuff now, but it's all deserted. Um, <clears throat> and uh, there's uh, like lots of great big holes where they're drilling down to like base new foundations and girders and supports for the foundations of new skyscrapers and stuff and buildings. Um, so as Jimmy enters the site, just as Officer Hayford's patrol car rolls past, because, you know, that's beat, and uh, Hayford sticks his head out and he says to Jimmy, you sure you'll be right in charge and control? I only ask because I have streets to patrol. And Jimmy's like, I'll be fine, officer, thanks. And Hayford drives off and Jimmy takes pics. Um, and then he goes over and sees, a, especially like to the largest, widest, deepest crater, and he stops and he looks down and he frowns and he refocuses his camera and sees something glinting at the base of the pit. So he climbs down um, and takes more pics, approaching this glinting item, which is revealed to be like a metal storm door, uh, which was catching the sun. And Jimmy moves forward. He's going to take more snaps. And Jimmy says to himself, and what have we here? And a voice behind him, which turns out to be ultra humanite, says, I'd say a pretty a good approximation of a trap, wouldn't you agree, Mr. Olson? And Jimmy whirls and comes face to face with Ultra, and he immediately starts backing up, terrified. And Jimmy says, hey, I'm just taking pictures. And he spins to flee and smacks straight into the chest of Americomando, making him stagger back and blocking his path. And Americomando says, picture this, and a fist smacks straight into Jimmy's face, and we have a hard cut to black. We wake up as Jimmy wakes up to find himself tied to the familiar gurney. And uh, it's clear, of course, Ultra is going to perform more surgery, turning Jimmy into the first of his disciples. 
and Jimmy is freaking out. And he refers to a man commando saying, don't you have enough muscle already? And uh, Ultra looming over him says, muscle, Mr. Olsen? I have a general for my army, if that's what you mean. So why do you need me? The hubris of the weak. Why do I need you, Mr. Olsen? What does an army need most? Not tanks, not guns, not generals. An army needs fodder, Mr. Olsen. And he starts his drill, which slowly descends towards Jimmy's forehead. And whilst all this has been going on, Jimmy's hands are tied to his sides, but he's sort of painstakingly stretching out, trying to reach the button on his Superman watch. Um, and his hands are like going you know, really close. It's digging in, maybe even drawing blood on his wrist as he's really going in. But he gets, he gets in and he presses the button. And Clark is in the busy press room, filing his new story titled Superman. His home, our war. And the room is large and square and filled with banks of phones and desks and desks and desks of typewriters and copywriters and journalists and at least two dozen pressmen and women. Everyone is smoking. As soon as he hears the alarm from Jimmy's watch, Clark drops the papers, takes off his glasses and moves smoothly through the press room, moving very smooth and very fast. And we have a wide shot of the entire heaving room as Clark moves left to right through the throng, every member of the press is preoccupied with their own stories, yelled conversations, dictations, down the wire, frantic last-minute typing. As such, Clark moves through this crowd basically, well, totally unseen. In the foreground now, between us and Clark, at least three people facing in different directions exhale smoke in a long, uh, in long, long strong streams that cut across the immediate view obscuring Clark for a second at a time as he walks between clouds. The last cloud of exhaled smoke clears revealing Superman standing before the entire press room with still no one looking up all lost to their deadline mania and Superman smiles and he turns and he flies from the window and following the alarm soup smashes into Ultra's new lair down into the hollowed out chamber beneath the building site and he finds Jimmy with Ultra standing over him, the drill saw like second inches from his head and Soup flashes in, breaks his binds, you know, Jimmy sort of rolls out the way and Ultra takes some steps back and Jimmy sort of sitting up on the gurney uh, says, Superman, it's a trap and Superman dryly is like, thanks Jimmy and Ultra cackles now in time to witness the perfection of my new world order, Superman, with man as my puppet and the universe my playground. And soups, someone with such an impressive uh, encephalon, you're missing one vital point. How can you hope to corral the citizens of this planet and order you to convert them? All your insight into humanity, all your intelligence, and yet you fail to grasp the most basic human trait, defiance. They will not surrender quietly and you will be left with nothing. And Ultra says, oh, Superman, of course they wouldn't. Even now they're preparing for yet another ridiculous war among themselves, with no one having the forethought to find another way. No, humans will fight. It's what they do. And Superman, so how could you ever hope to control them enough to perform your conversion? And uh, Ultra, he regards Superman in mild surprise, as if he assumed everyone knew about this. And he says, by using the mole men. 
and the penny drops as Ultra's master, master plan is finally revealed. He has been searching for and has now found the lost cathedral of the ancient race of mole men once, uh, who once ruled the earth and have long been buried deep in the earth's core for several millennia. And Ultra says, buried when humans were still picking fleas off each other. And uh, their civilization is buried deep into the earth um, as man became dominant. Now they all like, um, hibernate. This cathedral is basically a city housing tens of thousands of mole men. And there are other cities all over the place, deep underground, uh, other cities with um, in populous locations all over. In the meantime, Ultra's probes have dug deep and found the location of this cathedral. And more than that, right at the center, the tomb of the Mole King, who has been dead for, again, eons, and they have stolen the sacred sash of the mummified Mole King. Um, the probes have taken this sash shroud and are now bringing it even now, says Ultra, back to the surface. This removal has awakened the Mole Men, which we see over uh, Ultra's monologue, cutting to Mole Men, eyes opening and so forth, uh, who are now rising blindly and like following the pheromones of the sash. Once on the surface, Ultra will be able to mentally control the Mole Men's thoughts and have them spread out over the, uh, all over and systematically take, take everyone. Then Ultra will be able to start his conversion. His slave factory is almost complete. More cities um, of the Mole Men will be found and they will all be awakened with more millions and millions and millions reaching the surface in a matter of weeks and soon all humans will be marshaled and controlled and corralled and ready uh, for conversion into techno slaves. Soups has made rookie mistake number one uh, and now loses his advantage with America Mando attacking whilst he's focused on Ultra's monologuing. Uh, America Mando uses like a brand new, even more mega gun that fires incredible, crazy bursts of energy. He fires at Soups, he ducks and dives. Now Jimmy is trying to um, get America Commando out. He's trying to get out and America Commando sees him and he grins and aims as fires at Jimmy. Soups sees this and darts out, taking the blast. Soups is hit by the beam, sapping his strength, knocking him back and dazing him for a minute. He's hit again and again and he staggers back more and more and he's hit more by the advancing grinning America Commando. Soups staggers back more and falls into a prepared pit. It is deep and narrow, so that Soups is standing up, his arms pinned to his side uh, by the walls. And now, still dazed and trapped uh, by Ultra in this vertical coffin hole, a machine gun, no, a machine is pulled over the hole, and out of this now pours a flow of liquid concrete, which Ultra explains is a self-designed formula, and it might even be green-tinged. And it fills the hole, covering first Soups' boots and then legs, and it seems to harden very, very fast. And it's clearly strong enough that no matter how much he struggles, Soups can't break free. And as he struggles um, and he's sort of coming to more and more, um, for, you know, waking up from his days, takes in his surroundings, the cement up to his waist now. And Ultra explains this alien formula is strong enough to keep Soups trapped. And there's no chance of him breaking out underground where no ray of sun can power him. Um, Ultra stands over him and America Mando roughly grabs Jimmy and throws him down into this hole as well. So Soups is in this like coffin thing and then next to him is his, like a larger hole. And uh, now Jimmy's been thrown into this. Um, 
in one large pit. They're looking down into this pit. Ultra says, so goodbye, Superman. Even now, my probe has broken the surface with the mole men burrowing up behind, ready to break, ready to swarm. And Supes manages to say, where? Where will they swarm? And Ultra says, where do you think? And we cut now Metropolis, a busy street, and the traffic stops as the ground shakes, then cracks and then opens, and a big crack opens in the middle of the street, and people tentatively gather around the edge of the fissure and look down, and then they go, ah, and hundreds and hundreds of mole men spill out. Uh, mole men are basically the size and shape of, of like a very large barrel. Um, they're just like over a meter tall, perhaps, uh, maybe five foot. And they're broad uh, with little black eyes. And we learn that they are not evil or inherently violent. And they don't look savage as such. Actually quite cute under the right circumstance. But they will not be stopped when they have a task. And in this case, the Mole King's sacred remains, or the sash, have been brought to the surface. And the probe is flying it around. And now Ultra's got thought control and he's telling them what to do. And the controllers round up the humans, swarm the city. And underground, Jimmy uh, tries to help Supes as he's trapped in his concrete tube because it is useless as it's filling up now to his neck um, and still creeping up. And we have a nightmare image of Supes struggling and then being covered with the cement as it goes over his face, entombing him entirely, standing up as it hardens entirely. Uh, Ultra Dell gloats, says goodbye to Jimmy, covers the pit, sealing Jimmy and the coffin inside in pitch darkness with Superman's hardened tomb. We cut to more scenes of intense mayhem in the city as Mole Men, who I see the Mole Men actually as like Mole from the stop motion animation Wind in the Willows from the 80s, but just much larger and without the, the, the glasses or the suit or the buttons. <laughs> <laughs> but I see massive versions of him. Uh, and they burst through the new cracks everywhere, swarm into buildings, schools, homes, offices, hospitals. They burst from an open grave during a funeral. They burrow up from drains and sewers and under sporting fields, disrupting football games. And from beneath Metropolis Bay, swarming up, swimming up, splashing up uh, onto boats and whatever is there. They swarm the Daily Planet where the newsroom is overtaken and people are like rounded up. Lois runs, being pursued, right up the stairs um, and makes it to the roof with the big you know, planet globe just as the building is overrun. And on the streets far below, she sees as swarms of mole men flood the roads and buildings. Uh, and then as it sails overhead, Lois sees Ultra's probe floating above, uh, looking, by the way, like a tiny version of that thing from Empire Strikes Back, the probe droid. Like that, but smaller much smaller and chrome and shiny, flying over, floating above with the Mole King's sash grasped in its metal claw, and Lois clocks the Mole Men's movement is in sync with the probe's flight path. Uh, cut to more areas of the city as Mole Men swarm now the Daily Star offices, and we see editor George Taylor like swinging a chair, but uselessly as his paper is taken. Likewise, City Hall, One Piece Police Plaza, Grand Central Station, uh, the Mole Men take the city. Uh, underground, now encased and trapped in the foundations of a new skyscraper, Jimmy's in the pit with Soup's his coffin, uh, um, and they're left to die. Jimmy is alone with the sound of his own laboured, scared breathing, 
and he uses the flash from his camera to light up the tomb. And it's about a few meters wide and about 10 meters high with no way out. And he tries scraping it away at the block of concrete he's keeping Superman, but it's rock solid. And Jimmy is losing his strength and courage as he runs out of bulbs for his flash and running out of air sooner or later. He's alone um, as the air is running out. And then there's a scraping noise from above and a small ray of light now shoots down, then a wider beam of sunlight as a small hole appears in the roof above. And Jimmy squints up into it and coughing and cooling, and he calls up, hello? And from the hole above, there's a pause and then a voice comes down. Why, if it isn't the lad, but down below from the paper, and why do I always find you in the worst sort of caper? And Jimmy shouts up, Officer Hayford, is that you? And uh, Hayford shouts, uh, save your breath, young man, for your face is quite blue. Hayford makes uh, the hole wider and the yellow ray of sunlight now widens and lands on the monolith of concrete. There's a moment and Jimmy stares and a crack appears in the side of the monolith. And from this smaller cracks at first very fine thing uh, spreading out over the surface uh, as the, and then deeper cracks and then boom, the block explodes and soups is revealed dusty messy but standing in the sunlight and looking heroic as fuck and jimmy and hayford watch in awe and he says thanks jeremy officer um and soups flies right up um bursting out of the hole and once again covering hayford in dust and as he flies into the city and he sees it's overrun and he instinctively flies to the planet where he finds lois and some others now on the roof valiantly trying to fight back the mole men who are coming up the sides of the building and also from the doors on the roof. And Soups swarms, swoops in uh, and with his breath and speed of his flight, um, he fights and pushes the Mormon back, um, blowing them back with super breath. He asks Lois if she's okay, but she brushes that off and he tells her a vulture's lair under the old slum site and that Jimmy's still there. And Lois says, Jimmy second, monster things first. And she asks what these things are and immediately answers her own question and tells Soups of her suspicions of the probe and the sash it carries. And Soups, he, he's so impressed. And indeed, he's almost awestruck as he looks at Lois and he can't hide for love in his eyes. And he says, Miss Lane, in all my years, I have still have never met such an impressive. And Lois says, yeah, great Soups. Now, how about getting these hairy dwarfs out of the city? And Soups is slightly like a bashful and he nods and he flies off fast and he scans and he finds the probe um, with that found for City and has the sash. Um, and Soups flies right at the probe and he just punches through it, destroying it. And he, now he carries the sash. The pheromones attract them all men and Soups does a Pied Piper and he flies all over the city, uh, getting them all men to follow him blindly. Um, and he goes to all of the locations we've seen, flying over and in some cases through buildings. He flies low th uh, through streets um, and then high over rooftops. Wherever he goes, the mole men follow. Once Soups has thousands and thousands of mole men following him, he swoops once more and dives down deep into the original crater in the street where they came from and down deep uh, and through the tunnel, which has been burrowed, leading back to the center of the earth. And the mole men follow him all the way as Soups follows the probe's tunnel, twisting, turning, avoiding jagged obstacles and rivers of lava. And that's how we can see down there.
on the surface, the last of the mole men now enter the crater and disappear from the city back into the earth. And a figure watches from nearby um, as, as they go back in, his purple cape swirling around him. Americano's face is set like stone and he lifts off the ground and follows the mole men down into the hole. Meanwhile, Lois is back at, uh, in the back of a cab, making speed across the city, heading to the old slum district and Jimmy. And, but suddenly she yells at the driver, wait a second, I've got to make a quick stop first. And we see the cab break hard outside a building, which has a sign reading, Metropolis University of Chemistry and Science. Uh, closing on the center of the earth with thousands of mole men following, Suit makes it past all the obstacles and gets to the mole cathedral near the earth's core. It's absolutely ginormous, ancient and breathtaking, carved from the living earth's crust. And he reaches the central point, the sacred tomb, and he gently lays the sash back over the remains of the long dead king. And he flies up to a safe distance inside the cavernous chamber as the mole men swarm back home and Soups makes uh, your watches to make sure they're all okay as they all come in, in their thousands, stretch, yawn, go back to their homes, settle their little moly eyes, close down and go back to sleep for another millennium. And Soups leaves them to it and he flies back, uh, he begins to fly back up the tunnel, but he flies straight into a fist, making him shoot back and smash into a mammoth hunk of ingenious rock. An American Mando swoops in and Soups and he start their final confrontation in the center of the earth. They fly, they swerve, they punch, get punched. Soups takes flight and goes and um, finds a new way up, um, out from the mole city. Uh, he flies fast up this new route, followed savagely by American Mando. Um, and now eventually they both burst up onto the surface, now on the other side of the world in mainland Europe. And the old, back at the old slum site in Metropolis, Lois runs from a taxi carrying now a large bag. He finds Jimmy in Hayford standing by the entrance of the crater and Jimmy shouts, Miss Lane! And uh, Lois like, hi Jimmy, hi officer. And Hayford and Jimmy open their mouths to respond, but Lois blows right past them and disappears down the hole. And Jimmy and Hayford stare after her and Hayford says, I tell her to stop. And Jimmy says, but let's stay on the top. Very nearby in a carved out chamber, Ultra is in his lair. There's apparently a camera in a Americano suit because he's watching the actions on the floating screen of their fight. And he's giving directions occasionally to Americano and also has his probe circling so we can see the action from different angles. And he watches appreciatively uh, as he witnesses soups take hit after hit from fists as well as weapons. And their fight takes them all over it is an epic uh, flying from one country to the next, all, all over the place. We cut back and forth from this to Ultra watching, and behind Ultra, as he watches on his view screen, which floats in front of him, his eyes staying on this, Lois, we see, is slowly lowering herself down from the hole in the ceiling down into the room. In Europe, the fight ends in a snowy wasteland somewhere near the German-Polish border. And Americano, um, rains fire, bucking soups up a fair bit. And as they fight high in the air, we now see the armies that are converging below. Soups is hurt and knocked down, but he gains resolve, wipes blood from his lips, and uh, lays into Commando with some pretty serious blows. Um, he pummels him, 
through great ancient trees and through mounds of rock and mountain and then up through clouds really laying into him suits just going through it uh, they go right up almost colliding with a squadron of messers from it uh, and the german pilots freak and exclaim um, you know swerving around them american mando feels the feels the punishment his face is messed up uh, as he staggers quote unquote back in the air and for the first time seems to lose some of his pomp and assuredness Watching remotely, Ultra now plays his last hand. He reaches out with his mind and diverts all mental power, which he had been using controlling the Mole Men, which he now directs uh, this at the two opposing army divisions who are facing off each with each other across the snowy wasteland, uh, which is where the border is between countries. Ultra Humanite sends out his brainwaves, which we see traverse the globe like old-fashioned sci-fi ever-increasing circles. And these brainwaves now reach the division sitting below um, below the fight in the air. And about a thousand soldiers on both sides suddenly lose their focus uh, and their tense or scared expressions leave them replaced with blank looks. Then as one, both divisions of at least 2,000 troops, they all stand and leave their posts and vehicles and slowly march or slowly walk towards the other, closing the gap between them, entering the no man's land between. And there we learn are buried hundreds upon hundreds of landmines with both armies marching towards them. Ultra Humanite makes them um, slowly all advance uh, towards the massive minefield on both sides. Soup sees this from above and must break the psychic link between them and ultra-humanite, but American Mando has a second wind now, and he stops Soups as he attempts to fly down. And every time Soups gets close, uh, American Mando sucker punches him, grabs his foot and swings him into a mountain range, etc. Soups loses his advantage, gets a bit more fucked up. Um, from opposite sides now on low man's land, across the minefield, the lead soldiers now on both sides are almost at the first of the mines, just a few more steps. In the back of Ultra's lair, Lois is crouched, desperate to do something. She looks at the banks of machines, all blinking and flashing, and looking impossibly complicated. And now she edges closer to the largest, most important looking bank, and she keeps her eyes fixed ahead and is totally unaware of Ultra as he now looms up behind her. And we cut to the fight continuing between Soups and Americomando. Every time Soups tries to swoop down, he's stopped and now he's flagging. Back in the lair, Lois is almost at the main computer bank when the voice behind her makes her jump and shriek and whirl around. And Ultra Humanite says, looking for the off switch, Miss Lane? And uh, she uh, hurriedly collects herself and says, who needs a switch when you have the fuse? And Ultra is mid-scoff when he sees Lois take a large jar out of her bag, which is filled with like a clear liquid. And also inside this large jar of liquid is another smaller jar itself filled with another liquid. And Lois is like, remember this? You've already lost one lab this way. These two liquids meet, we're gonna go boom together. And Ultra, how insanely simplistic. You even know what those liquids are? And Lois, you know, frowning a bit, well, carbon, water-based. Hey, they go boom, okay? And Ultra, you're really willing to die by your own hand? You can't be serious. And uh, Lois looks at him right in his brainstem, and she says, I'm always serious. Doesn't mean I don't have a sense of humor. 
and she drops the jar, which smashes uh, as the liquid splashes out right into the bank of machines and everything immediately starts being eaten up. It's a bit of a Superman 3 wannabe to end up with fizzing and hissing. And um, we cut to the Amer uh, American continent and we see, we see um, um, the Ultra's uh, thought brain transmissions going out, but then they cut off from the source in, you know, from Metropolis mid-pulse in the lair, explosions uh, happen, all the computer banks explode, uh, the cavern is rocked, Ultra hisses, Lois turns to run, but is caught from his bony hand from behind. In Europe, America Commando hits Soups hard in the face, knocks him back, and then shoots him with a pulse cannon. Soups is hit, flies right back into the side of a mountain, leaving a dent. He looks pretty beaten. Below, the troops are still moving towards the mines, we see uh, the Earth now from space with the transmissions from Ultra cut off, but the, the second half is still traveling forward, taking a minute to go around the globe. But now they reach Europe and the transmissions dissipate, the last leaving the soldiers as its momentum finally runs out. Less than a step away, their foots raised and poised above the mines, the soldiers from both sides at the, um, all alter for a moment, then stop, and uh, they settle, they stare ahead a long moment, their eyes still glassy, but now both divisions on both sides of the field are halted, just facing each other, and high above, hovering uh, above the ground, Soups and Americano face each other about 90 metres apart, and very deliberately, Americano unslings his last weapon, which is a long-barreled device that looks to be a cross between a sniper rifle and a bazooka. And Soup seems out of options, he is spent. There is desperation in his eyes as they dart about looking for a solution. And his eyes now fall on the mountain ledge next to him. And he reaches out and takes a uh, handful of snow. Opposite, Americano clicks the loader of his gun, slides the button back, making the gun start to whine with power. Soup takes both hands now and rubs them super fast over this pile of snow. Uh, and whilst blowing a thin stream of icy breath into the mound as he does it, making it grow. American Commando clicks back the last switch, closes an eye, squinting through the sights of his gun. We see his point of view with the crosshairs over Soups' heart. Uh, Soups stops his frantic motion and parts his hands, revealing the snowball about the size of a grapefruit. And he looks at American Commando with a squint of his own, turning his body sideways on like a pitcher. And American Commando grips the trigger and his mouth parts to reveal a grin. And, and Soups faces him down, brings back his uh, shoulder and says to himself, batter up. American Commando pulls the trigger, Superman throws the snowball. And we go back into ultra slow motion as the laser beam uh, in one continuous beam starts to extend from the gun barrel, stretching out across Soups. Likewise, the snowball shoots from Soups towards American Commando. In this epic wide shot, we have the mountain range. On either side of the frame, we have these two people. And from both of them, the red laser beam is traveling one way. And from right to left is the snowball. And the beam, you know, it looks like they're going to actually connect. But then the snowball um, goes past and the laser shoot past each other. Um, the laser beam heads straight towards Soups. The ball heads straight towards American Commando. 
in a wide shot, uh, we see the projectile and the beam pass each other. The laser beam is now almost with soups, the tip of it, the beam heading straight for his heart. The snowball is hardening, uh, forming more layers as it whizzes through the air. The speed, instead of breaking it up, is solidifying it further, creating a frozen outer shell. The tip of the beam is now inches from soups. Uh, the snowball whizzes straight at Amel Commando, who is just now opening his eye from the gun sight. And now with both eyes open, he sees the snowball and he reacts, but too late. And the snowball speeds into his face like a huge frozen cannonball. And it ex the snowball explodes. And still in this, this slow-mo, we see the ripple effect it, uh, the impact has on Amelokamano's face. You know, his cheek ripples, his head is forced back, his lips crack, and his skin breaks to bruise. And the, as the impact forces his head back, his whole upper body, which is still hovering in the air, is like also forced back by the impact. His gun arm and his entire upper body tips up as he like flies backwards, like head back, then feet, and then head and feet as he sort of flips away. And the laser, uh, which is still connected to the gun, raises up, not no longer pointing at Soup's heart, now his face, now his forehead, his scalp, and just as it reaches him, the laser shoots over Soup's head. And we see the whole effect again, but this time in normal speed, the throw, the blast of the gun, and it's over in like a second. The snowball slams into Amalcano's face, who flips over, feet overhead, spinning backwards. The remains of the exploded snowball, now like a big puffy cloud. Um, behind Soup's, the laser goes over his head and explodes a massive rock um, behind him. Um, like some way away, a mountain is hit. The beam is now broken, uh, and this is the extent of damage. Apart from Soup's hovers in place for a second, getting his breath, writing uh, the heavy, writing uh, himself after the hefty throw. But then his black kiss curl lock over his forehead falls down, and he reacts and catches it in his open palm. And he examines his little kiss curl. Uh, which at the end is like smoking a bit, frazzled by the heat of the laser, which apparently came so close to taking off his head, it just skimmed his hair and cut his lock. And Soups tilts his hand and wistfully lets the lock drop far, far, far down the ground below, watching for a second. And then he looks uh, back up at the spinning Americano, who's slowly starting to right himself. And Soups has a new look in his eye of a prize fighter about to unleash. And that's exactly what he does, super fast, just as Americano is always like, oh, getting his wits together. Soups flies right at him, hits him hard in the face, super punch, knocking him flying back. But Soups increases his own speed and keeps up, punching Americano again in the body and then the face and then the body and the face, his arm just going into him like a blur. Uh, Soups opens up on him and frankly beats the living shit out of him. It's like the end of Rocky III. Uh, with one final massive wallop, Superman punches American Commando in an uppercut, sending him up past the horizon where he crashes hard into the base of a mountain, which then cracks, splinters, and falls on top of him. Uh, the dust settles and Soups looks down, uh, and it's just the mountain is just on top of this guy now. And he looks down just in time now to see the armies who are still halted in their tracks either side of this minefield facing their enemy across about maybe 50 meters of snow. And they eye the other at first with confusion, 
then as their brains clear with recognition, suspicion, and then the beginnings of hate, and they start reaching slowly and instinctively for their rifles slung about their shoulders. And now Supes lowers down, hovering 10 meters over the minefield, exactly between the two divisions. And they both stop and they look up at him and Supes turns and in German says to the German troops with subtitles, your minds have been freed. Fighting is a choice. No one can tell you what to do anymore. And then he just turns around and he repeats the same thing in Polish to the Polish troops with subtitles. And then he turns and he flies up and away and leaves them to it. And for a long moment, no one moves. Both sides look at the other across the no man's land. Then they all start to turn. And as one, they slowly walk away from the field and away from each other, away from the mines, away from the war. And they drop their guns in the snow as they leave. Meanwhile, in Metropolis, Lois is among the wreckage of the machinery and she's uh, crawling away, but she's caught by ultra-humanite. She is forced back onto the old gurney with ultra promising to perform a lobotomy worthy of a Nobel. Uh, a whoosh, a blast, Superman bursts in, lasers the last machine which explodes and Soup's face is ultra and he says, enough. And ultra-humanite is like, a single victory does not mean the battle is over, Superman. All I need do is kill you, then nothing and no one can stop the next wave of mole men. Not just the last envoy, but all the mole men. They will engulf this entire planet in less time. And Superman says again, I said enough. And he lasers a smoking machine, which explodes in a large shower of sparks. And this switches off the, the force beam holding Lois in place. And she gets up and backs away towards Superman and ultra humanite says, fool, no one can outthink me. No one can outsmart me. No one can outmatch me. And Superman starts to advance on ultra humanite who starts to back away. And Soup says, this reign of terror is over humanite. And I think you'll find Rikers and now Soup slowly slows his words, starts to slur, looks confused. And he looks sluggishly at Lois who stares back and then he looks at Ultra Humanite, who starts to cackle. And Ultra Humanite, you weak minded cretin, you thought you'd beaten me, the Ultra Humanite, when I have the power to control men's minds, I have but begun to feast on the will of humanity. I eat their minds like fruit from a tree, and yours, Kryptonian, will be the most succulent fruit of all. His brain starts to glow now, his soup lights up as Soup staggers back, sways, but then stands still, looking back blankly at Ultra-Humanite, his eyes unfocused. And Lois is horrified and she shouts, Superman! And Ultra-Humanite, it's over, petty being. Your hero has fallen and all efforts thus far you will find have been for nothing. More, more men shall awaken, more slaves I shall create, and the turning of the earth shall cease as the rule of humanity is ended forever. For I am the power, I am the will, I am the, and Superman says, most long-winded blowhard I have ever heard. And I've met the president. And Lois, eyes wide, hope and wonder, look at Superman. And ultra-humanite says, this can't be. You shall not prevail. No one can resist my power, especially you, man from Krypton. And Superman and yet I do resist and still I shall prevail in the name of humanity. 
and ultra human like backing away no 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 and his brain starts to overload and the fluid around it starts to bubble in the transparent orbital around his head and he screams no and superman just sort of looks to lois and he's like uh lois to me and lois doesn't need to be told twice and she raises over into his arms and at that they both shoot up out of the hole in the ceiling and away and ultra humanite screams in a wide shot the whole place coming down around him his whole suit glowing white hot overloading a light shining from the scenes insanely brightly and he lets out a last massive scream of fury and pain and then the light drowns out everything we catch a glimpse of the entire cavern being enveloped as his body explodes uh, outside in the uh, at the old slum site soups and lois shoot up past a befuddled hayford uh is just now arriving back up and hayford again is covered and less uh, left in lots of dust and dirt and from the crater an epic underground explosion and then the pit collapses in on itself and all sinks in and settles everything utterly filled in and with her arms wrapped around his neck standing tiptoe on his boots lois and soups now slowly drift facing each other very close never taking their eyes from the others and in this semi-embrace they're slowly drifting down to the ground and lois says okay mr brainiac how did you beat his mind warp was he wrong about your people and superman says not at all lois but sometimes even the smartest person needs to just get out of their own way ultra humanite was so proud of his knowledge of knowing that he could defeat me with his mind control he never stopped to consider that i knew this too it was ultimately a simple matter of reversing the frequency of his trans beam which i deduced and hoped would be calibrated to kryptonians and it was so knowing the frequency used i could reverse it not only blocking it from my mind but bouncing it back at him his suit was so fused with his perverted tech that i overloaded i knew that overload would be calamitous and thus it was and lois like boy you're really something you know that and superman really well i didn't want to say and lois oh really modesty didn't permit her huh? something like that and superman well most of the time and lois laughs a genuine laugh burst into his face and he laughs back and suddenly between their profiled faces comes the face of officer hayford and we pull back to find that the pair landed some moments ago but didn't notice and hayford says a week and a half of this simpering mire i hope to christ this one's for the fire i don't know how you do it you and you both i hope you remember and think of me most and lois is like cram it officer but with a smile and he smiles and she disentangles herself from soups who looks at them both smiles again at lois raises up into the sky flies away back at the planet clark too is very impressed and in the newsroom clark is sort of perched on a, on a tabletop again with lois perched on the edge of another table and jimmy standing to the side and clark says i'm so proud of you lois really i mean it you did the right thing you saved lives you and lois like yay whoopee for me if i hadn't rushed to ultra bot's lair of doom i'd have finished the story it would have been dynamite and jimmy uh, says well i for one am glad you didn't miss lane who knows what would have happened and lois woulda coulda shoulda sure war was averted for a hot minute at least but what at the price of my story 
my story, Jimmy. And Clark, like, trust me, Lois, you may have lost the story, but you found, and Lois rounds on him, Clark, if you say I found my humanity, I may just kill you forever. And then Perry enters the newsroom from his office, carrying tomorrow's edition, hot off the press. And Perry says, well, if that's all it'll take for you to murder your co-workers, then you must be losing your mind to be beaten to this story by a rival. And Lois is like, beaten? Rival? No such things, chief. And Perry says, well, tomorrow's front page says different, sweetheart. And Lois, what? She snatches the paper from him and opens it up. The front page screams, showdown of the century, lots of exclamation marks. A first-hand account of the final battle between Earth's greatest threat and its greatest hero, exclusive by Clark Kent. And Lois is, Clark! But uh, behind her, uh, he is gone. Uh, the seat that he was leaning against is just spinning slowly. And outside the newsroom, Clark hurries down the corridor and away as Lois's bellow follows him. And he darts into an office, which is empty, with a nice desk, and he closes the door. He remains visible behind the glass panel on the door as it closes. And we see on this panel of glass, the letters printed reading in bold letters, Clark Kent, senior reporter. And we move in on these letters uh, and with these being front center and behind them now framed is Clark's, like his head is cropped out of the frame. It's just his suit and tie, his shirt and tie basically. And he reaches up and he pulls down the blind covering the door's window, but only for a second because the, then the, the broken blind flips back up, like again, revealing the door, the window, the letters, and now behind it, filling the glass, no longer the white shirt and tie. We have the blue, we have the red, we have the yellow, we have the chest, we have the insignia. And then he turns from the door, filling up the window now with the red of his cape as he takes one step and then another, a final flourish of his cape and whoosh, leaving an empty office and an open window uh, with rustling papers on the desk and the city spread out to the horizon beyond with a blue blur moving up, up and away. A double little coda, a little jail cell. And we see um, Max and he's been had all the tech taken off him. He's deflated again. He looks more like you know, his old self. He has like surgery scars all over the place. And he sits in his little prison cell, seething. Uh, and opposite him, the wall is covered with clippings, um, uh, all written by Lois Lane and indeed other paper clippings, um, just filling up. And he's staring at Lois's writing and he vows his revenge. And then finally, we see Ultra. All that remains of ultra humanite, and it's just his brain floating in a jar, and it's just a big old close up of this nothing but the brain and the stem floating in liquid. And as he quote unquote speaks, the light on the base of the jar flashes in time to his words, and we begin a slow pullback. And ultra humanite says, You may think me beaten, you may think me trapped, but no man and no thing can stop the genius of the ultra humanite. I shall not be stopped. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I shall not be vanquished, but I shall rise again to more power, more glory, more control than this puny planet could ever contain. For I am the ultra humanite, and this universe is mine. And during all of this, the pullback is increased and increased and increased. Um, and we see him in his jar floating there, 
and then we see the shelf that this jar is resting on, and next to it are other items. We have some weird tech, some strange masks, an, an engine component, um, some thumbed paperbacks, uh, a spare pair of glasses, and we move back and back and back, and we see the jar is on a shelf next to other strange and random miscellanea, and back more and more we see uh, other shelves above and below, all covered, um, sometimes mundane, sometimes exotic, sometimes alien items, as well as a dog slinky, uh, a pair of chest expanders, some grilled clean cream, a green crystal, and we see Ultra and his jar are in the Fortress of Solitude in the middle of a huge ice shelf case. Um, the jar surrounded by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other shelves, other items, and his rant um, is like reaching intensity, but the volume dims as it's swallowed by the vast space as we pull out and back even more and we see Raiders style. This section of the fortress is massive and with all sorts of some weird stuff. Some even seem alive. We see children games from alien planets, some human artifacts uh, from arrowheads to baby shoes to Mike priceless Ming vases to dime store cowboy adventure cereals um, to a, a, a map of Gotham City and out and out and out, uh, more into the fortress, which is revealed to be absolutely immense as Ultra is left alone with his thoughts and his last scream is lost in the space. And we have credits. Uh, and we have a tagline, don't be good, be super. <laughs> so that's, a, that's, that's Superman. Lots of nasty people. Lots of bloody nasty people, Sheppy. Lots of villains for your buck. Holy shit. Uh, man, yes. I don't even. I mean, you know, there aren't su there aren't superlatives left to describe you, Benjamin Shepherd. There's just not, man. That that is an extraordinary. We are, you know, very little breaks. You know, honestly, no breaks. We didn't take a break, but I'm just saying, like, you know, that is a straight two hours forty, right there, of like. Well you, uh, listen, I'm going to give you some things I loved about it in a minute, but I also just need to also give you some love and say amazing and thank you on behalf of the listenership and everything and the world owes you a great debt, Benjamin. Metropolis owes you a great debt, Benjamin. And just then basically, doing my job. Just doing your job, absolutely. You do need now also to like, I don't know, connect with your girlfriend, connect with your dog, get out there and explore the world. That must have taken, like, I can't even imagine the time that took to pull together. You gave us bullet-by-bullet <laughs> bullet action scenes. You gave us artifact-by-artifact artifact pullbacks in the last show. <laughs> um, but anyway, I mean, I just, I don't even know where to start. I feel, anyway, humbled, Sheppy, but okay, you can piff path. Let me just give you a couple, I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, I'm not even going to do any justice. I'll just give you the things I really... You know, he got his sort of, um, there's something there around his sort of platitudes and his preachiness that you got spot on, which I just really loved. I loved the little gag with the cat at the beginning. Didn't even own the cat. That's lovely. Your fucking iambic pentameter officer, and I know you love him as much as I do because he comes in so much. Like, <laughs> and the fans are not, the purists are not going to hate him. They're going to love him. And he's the best, <laughs> best character you've ever written. So just <laughs> deal with that. I, I think my favourite beat is that car ramp that he pulls in with the ice, you know, with his breath at the end and how it then jumps. And like it's just so nice. And, yeah, it was very visceral and pure. And 
just to, you know, I just uh, there's lots of gawping in it, Sheps. I wrote down. <laughs> you might need Ezra Miller to come in and consult for you to make sure those gawps are good enough. <laughs> um, I I put uh, oh god, this is this is the problem. I was skipping as you were saying things, but very happy with selfish. So look, what the hell is that? Oh, okay, sorry. Very happy with your Lois Lane. She's very wonderful. And like mm -hmm. selfish Lois is wonderful. The fact she can't make coffee is wonderful. <laughs> Just how bristly she is. That moment with Clark at the end, him like forgetting Clark. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Classic Lois and always heartbreaking. And you did that real lovely. Um I want a Queen Bee more. <laughs> and you killed yeah. me bastard. <laughs> She was like whoever that character Moz or whatever could have been in Force Awakens. She had that kind of vibe for me, like could have been, could have been Moz. Um, you know, she she was better than Moz. Um, Patches, yada yada, really liked all that. Um, oh, I love all the fact he just checks on people all the time in yours, like the guy with the stogie, the guy in the, you know, in the train driver, and everything. He's always just checking on people before he rushes off to go and do something. I really, I like that. I dug that a lot, Sheppy. Bullet by bullet, slow-mo, spectacular, I wrote at some point. Attack on the... Oh, I like the fact there was an attack on the planet, uh, the Daily Planet. I like the fact that you got a got a train in there, Sheppy, as well. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, what was that? What, what, what? Love that point of view. Well, whatever that meant, I really appreciated it. Back it back, you know, now. <laughs> anyway, listen, man, I bloody loved it. Thank I really you, enjoyed it. And, uh, oh, I like that you had like your Pavlov's gun for Jimmy's watch. And uh, <laughs> and I think um yes, yes, just all of happiness. Let's just say fucking wonderful chefs. Well, thanks, know. man. I, I appreciate that. that. And you know, there were characters cut relatively late. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> think, think about that. Um, America Commando is a whole different character. He was kind of like in the comics, a bit like the Punisher, and he's called Tex, and he's like an oil man with blonde hair, but then he works as a statistic, the DA's private investigator, and then he's like got this double identity, and he's sometimes clashing with Clark and Superman, and sometimes they clash against each other violently, but then he got his own spin-off thing. So I had Tex in it, um, but then it became clear, and, and ultra, and, and but then I was like, well, no, it's got to be Max who gets turned into a commando and not him. And he was never a pure villain anyway, made that way. So that was a massive liberty the purists are really going to rally against. And me making Max him, you know, it's just really just cutting it all up. But what, I know, think it's wonderful, like... Sheppy. It felt very real and supermanly to me and happy. I think. Screw the purists, that's what I say. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he doesn't speak for both of us purists. <laughs> going down alone, Jimmy. Uh, thank you, man. Well, look, I didn't think it was going to turn out to be a, a Sheppy epic. I really didn't. I know I always say that. A Sheppic. Come a on. Shepic. Oh, that's nice. So thank <laughs> you. Again, it's one of those things. My, my defense is like, I just, when am I ever going to this earnestly? Right, and action for Superman to do. So you know, that's sort of well, I just hope, Sheps. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm, anyway, man, look, because there is an order of business, Shepard. I think probably for the end of a formal episode, um, which is to say to you, what pray, Sheppy, might we be doing next yes. time? I have to say, I just got distracted because my dog is eating his stitched paw, so I just had to throw my balled up socks at him, and it made him jump. And I was looking at them like they're alive. 
So uh, well, I think into... that's a lovely bookend because I think we started with the stitches and that's really nice. Right. So uh, yeah, cool <laughs> on no, this whole adventure. All right, Jimmy. So now I shall set the next one, and I've deliberately gone with something that conceivably is no pressure, um, small scale, really, truly. Um, after that, just like you know, something different. I. I think you've seen this. I'm sure you've seen it. I, I'm, I, I, I'm so sure, I think. But either way, I don't know, actually. Um, but it's it's just a different genre. It's action, buddy-buddy. Uh, they only made one. They set up. They could have done more, and they didn't. Um, and it's one of those things. So, Jimmy, I would like a sequel to The Last Boy Scout. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Seen it heaps. Love it. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. You got your Brilliant. black... You, you've got your Willis, you, you've got your Waynes, and uh, anything else you like. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I can tell you now, that has got Shepik all over it as well. That has got <laughs> Shepik all over it as well, because there is the case for banter and everything, you know. I, yeah, okay. That's good. That's great. That's exciting. That's exciting, Sheps. And it's one which isn't on my list. You know, I have this list that I still dip into, uh, but that wasn't, that's never been on there. But um, when I first um, told people that we were doing this pod, um, the idea and everything, if people said, well, obviously you're going to do a sequel to Last Boy Scout. And at the time I was like, well, doesn't, I mean, it would be a brand new adventure, not, not a continuation. So but then by this point, we've done many, many brand new adventures and no continuations. So I think the time has come for Last Boy Scout. So yes. Um, Crack him. Oh, and good, of course, good suggestion. thank you, man. Well, I'm very excited about all of that, which I guess leaves us nothing else but to, I don't know, take off our, well, I'll take off my glasses, rip open my shirt. Uh, but that's how I always end our conversations. So I don't know. Is <laughs> We'd love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at shoulderspod.com or shoulderspod at Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.